Angel Donovan, your host of Dating Skills Podcast. We're at episode 79. We're going to look into dating lifestyles today, including swinging the porn industry and casual relationships. We're going to tackle some of the less comfortable subjects, such as practicing safe sex, how to select women, and at the bottom of it, taking a hard look at what the reality of dating and sex relations between men and women are with a guest who has a lot of real world experience and is really, really super candid and quite happy to be politically incorrect in order to help people get to the truth. So today's guest is Dave Pounder, who spent 10 years in the porn industry as both an actor and director and has had a very active sex life in the swinging community also. So he isn't your usual porn actor. He has taken a strong interest in the academic world and scientific studies on male-female relationships and was at one time considering pursuing his own PhD on a subject. That's pretty unusual. So instead, he actually ended up writing a book and produced a film on his experiences and views on sexuality and the adult porn industry. His book is Obscene Forts, a pornographer's perspective on sex, love, and dating. And also, his documentary is Risky Business, and no, that's not the Tom Cruise film. It's Risky Business, a look inside America's adult film industry. Neither of these pull punches, and they take really hard looks at the social, psychological, and economic impacts of performing in adult movies, and what that can teach people in general. It looks at how they affect relationships, jobs, and so on. It's interesting stuff. So Dave combines both real-world extreme dating lifestyle experiences as well as academic studies, which is pretty cool and unique. As you'll see, it makes for great discussion and lots of great insights, so much so that I asked Dave to record a second part of this interview, so it's a double episode, extra long and extra cool. This interview really was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. To get today's show notes with more information on Dave and how to connect with him and links to everything else he spoke about, the interview transcript and mp3 download, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and pick out the episode from the list. Or you can just go to datingskillsreview.com and click podcast to see all the usual episodes and select it there. Now, today's question is, what is the best advice you learned about safe sex from this episode or elsewhere? Just put your answer in the show comments on the site and I'll pick the most useful comment to give a free coaching call and access to the Dating Skills Academy, our exclusive member site for learning dating skills as fast as possible. So for an opportunity to get that for free, answer in this episode's comments, what is the best advice you learned about safe sex from this episode or elsewhere? Now let's get into this interview. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships. To become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better step-by-step episode by episode. Dave, welcome to the show. So great to have you here. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I really like the fact that you've got a lot of experience to bring to the table and that you seem to have a deep interest in reality, much like I do in like kind of saying it how it is, even if it's not so nice to hear. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. 
yeah, hopefully this is going to be a really exciting podcast for the guys because we're going to get in their faces a bit, <laughs> which is also always fun. I'm sure you're kind of used to that. Is your book and your documentary, are they seen as kind of controversial? Just kind of to hit it, start off. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. It kind of depends how you look at it. I mean, I think anything in the adult film industry or just sexuality more generally, you know, unfortunately in, in America is seen as controversial. Um, you know, we live in a society where Janet Jackson has a wardrobe malfunction at the Super Bowl and exposes a breast and it's a national news story and it's the end of the world and the end of morality where the Europeans look at us and think how silly it is that we make such a big deal over something that's perfectly natural. So I guess you could say it is controversial, but it should not be controversial. It's really more of a, the book is more about evolutionary psychology as it applies to human mating and it's supported by an abundance of research. And the documentary is really more of a public health and political documentary about the need to implement better regulation to protect the health and safety of of performers like they would do in any in any other industry where the health and safety of workers uh, were at risk. So it is controversial, but it shouldn't be controversial. Yeah, it sounds like you're, you know, you're leading a bit of a white knight battle on that front. We'll get a bit more into that in a bit. First of all, let's hear a bit more about you so the guys get to know you and can kind of see the context where this is all coming from. How old are you today? Today I'm 38. <laughs> I uh, Interestingly, I went to an all-guys Catholic high school, which kind of sucked. I, I kind of didn't really like wearing the uniform and having to be there earlier. And uh, I actually met my first girlfriend when I was in college at Michigan State. And I didn't, really didn't know anything about girls whatsoever. So I dated her for six years straight. And uh, you know, I thought to myself, wow, this is great. I love this girl. Everything's going awesome. She's attractive. But, but I'm feeling myself inclined towards wanting to have sex with other girls. And I thought that was just me. I'm like, that's a Dave thing. Not all guys are like that. That's just my personality. And she wasn't really cool with that. And I thought that was just her and that I needed to find a girl who was more like me, a girl that was more open to sexual variety, lack of commitment, you know, things like that. And um, when I went to to grad school, we broke up so I could basically play the field and uh, go out to these different bars or clubs. And I would try to hook up with girls. And when I did, I noticed they were always trying to get relationships. I just started seeing this pattern of my male friends wanting to, you know, quote unquote, hook up with the girl or this place is good. You know, I, I, I got laid at this place, whatever. And, and girls, if it was the reverse scenario where maybe they hooked up and it didn't lead somewhere, it didn't lead to a relationship or something more significant, then the girls had the opposite impression that the place was bad. There was just a bunch of losers there. Let's go to a place where there's some real guys. So then I started reading the literature on psychology and came across evolutionary psychology, which I think offers a really powerful lens for how to view male-female interactions and why people behave the way that they do. And if you understand evolutionary psychology, it, it makes a lot of sense in light of not just mating, but also in kin selection, mutual reciprocity, you know, things like that. Yeah. Whose work do you like? Was Jeffrey Miller's like which? which yeah, you know, I, I I'm partial to people like uh, David Buss. Uh-huh. I think he has uh, solid research. David Schmidt, John Townsend over at uh, Syracuse University. Uh, David Buss is at the University of Texas, and David Schmidt's at Bradley University. I mean, Miller and those guys have they they touch on the human sexuality. I mean, there's certain things of their premise oftentimes that I don't necessarily agree with. Like Miller talks about you know, in his book Spent, he talks about how a lot of guys will go out and they'll spend all this money on fancy car or fancy clothing and watches as a way to signal to women, you know, that they have resources and things like that, which, which makes sense. Obviously I, I bust would agree with that as would I, and he's saying, well, you know, there's really no need to do that because what happens is, is once a girl actually knows you, she's going to see that you have 
social status and confidence and resources, even though you're not displaying them. It's kind of like, think of it like the sneaky hot mentality. Like there's a girl who could have a perfect body. Okay. And she could flaunt that body. She could wear a bikini, a thong bikini. She could wear short jean shorts, et cetera. And that really is sort of conspicuous or conspicuous, uh, dressing provocatively. Right. Uh, now conversely, that same girl could wear a very baggy sweatshirt and loose fitting jeans and you would never know it by looking at her. And then once she's naked, you're like, wow, what a great body. Right. And, and that's the same thing. I mean, a guy could drive around in a Ferrari and wear a Rolex and dress nicely and advertise himself as the CEO of whatever corporation he happens to run and women find that appealing. And, and he could also not do that. And he could wear a Timex watch and drive around in an old car and still be the CEO of that company and have the resources. But most people wouldn't know it until they got to know them. And there's still an appeal to kind of that flaunting, if you will, like in the same way that, yeah, it'd be nice to see the girl in the baggy pants naked and see her great body. That's exciting, but it's even more exciting when she actually dresses provocatively for the anticipation of that encounter. So I'm more of a resource conservative guy myself. I don't like to unnecessarily spend money to sort of engage in conspicuous consumption to sort of increase mating opportunities. But I can see why a lot of women respond to that. And there was a guy, I don't know if you talked to him, you know, God Saad at Concordia University, where they put the same guy, exactly the same guy, aesthetically, same exact person, same clothing, et cetera, in two different cars. He was in, I think he was in a, either like a Bentley or some nice car. And then he was in some other like Pinto car, same exact guy. And women's ratings of attractiveness were completely different just by changing the car, not even changing him. And for men, there was no effect when they were viewing the attractive woman in either car. Great, yeah, you might have also seen there was uh, basically a spoof, well, not really a spoof, but uh, like an experiment on YouTube where this guy made this rule that he's he's not allowed to say anything to girls, but he had to get them into his car. So he rents a Lamborghini for the day. (laughs) Right. Just pulls up next to the girl and he just beeps a horn and waves his finger, like, get in the car, and the girls will be like, what? What? Uh-huh. And he just keep pointing at the sea and smiling, and he'll, he'll never say anything. And, you know, you see a bunch of the girls get in the car without the guy right. saying anything. I've seen something similar. I saw a YouTube where the guy basically had a nice car, like a Bugatti or something, and he, he wasn't in the car, but he was outside sitting on the hood, and his girls walked by. He'd just be like, hey, what's up? You know, you want to hang out? And, like, the majority of girls talk to him, but it, it looked staged, the one that I saw, because uh, the way things were going down, like, it just looked like it was set up. But I, th- I think they're just trying to do a, like you said, a spoof or they're trying to accentuate what they already know. There's another funny video called something to the extent of women catcalling men. You know how like guys will go down the road and go, Ooh, nice ass or whatever. And the girl's like, wow, you like it. You look like you ha- could make some great babies or you look like you want commitment. Like it's, it's a funny YouTube video. I forget exactly what the name of it, but if, if you Google or if you YouTube uh, women cat calling men or something you might find it and of course it's a spoof it's a joke but it's yeah it's relevant. we'll find it and put links in the show notes it's so is that is that a spoof or a real thing no no it's a spoof i mean it, it's just a joke mm-hmm. of like created by right. women and okay. women cat calling men and w- things women would say to men in the same way that men are called in the same way that you know men basically value youth physical attractiveness body type etc and and when guys do cat calls that's what they do right a girl walks by they hold up the number 10 or a number of one to 10 and say oh you know nice butt or nice boobs or or, you know, you're hot, something something physical. And for women, they don't catcall a guy and go, wow, nice arms. They would be like, wow, that's a nice car, or, nice outfit, or, you know, that's a great job you have. Or, uh, wow, you look like you want a family. You know, like things that would appeal to sort of the evolutionary interests of females. I mean, obviously women don't really catcall men, but if they did, hypothetically, 
that's what the spoof is about. Do you think this is equally like women across the board respond to these kind of markers, these these social signs? Me personally, I'm doing okay in life, but I don't buy anything flashy. I'm I'm very much I'm not interested in buying anything. In fact, I've like kind of sold all my stuff, and I, I'm very minimalist. I'm not interested in carrying that stuff around me, like a lot of my friends. And my dating life, uh, I think that women still, I think they judge me based on my freedom. They assume I must be lucrative or doing well because of the the margin of freedom I have in my life and what I've done. So it's based kind of based on my experiences. So it's, it's looking at it from a different angle. Anyway, here's a theory for our views. Like those kind of markers, those very unsubtle markers, any women kind of kind of spot those and might, especially the ones with an agenda who are more interested in that kind of thing specifically, might be drawn to that kind of flashiness. Whereas the more subtle ones, you might be getting a different type of woman that takes more of an interest. Well, I think it gets back to what I was saying earlier about the girl who dresses sneaky hot, where she's wearing baggy clothing and you don't know she's attractive. She maybe wouldn't normally get approached at random at the mall or just picked up at the parking lot because she's not really signaling anything that men value. But once a guy gets to know her and he say he's friends with her and then he goes to the beach and he's like, wow, I'm interested in her because she has a attractive body type or is youthful and you know, has these other things that men look for. And it's the same thing that you say. So when women see a nice car or they see a man nicely dressed, it's not that they're saying, oh, this guy has a Ferrari. I want to be with him. You know, they're using the nice car as a proxy or as a signal to show that this guy does have intelligence or education or social status or these things that women really want. You know, we can look at a girl and we instantly know her mate value just by looking at her from a male's perspective. Women don't know. They're kind of like detectives. They have to kind of fish out clues. What do you do for work? What kind of car do you drive? Trying to to find out what is this guy's resource potential? What is his ability to father children, be a good father, et cetera? So when someone talks to you, for example, as the minimalist, maybe you're not driving down the road and a bunch of girls check you out. Much like when I'm sitting down the road, I'm not checking out the girl who walks by with baggy pants on. I'm checking out the girl with the shorts and a, and a camisole top, right? But the thing is, is once I've gotten to know the girl with the baggy pants, and then I just become friends with her because I like her as a person, and, and then I realize, wow, you know, we hung out once at the beach, and she really does have a nice body. I didn't know that till now, and then all of a sudden you become attracted. So in your case, I don't think the girl like sees you instantly and says, oh, I'm attracted to Angel. You know what I mean? But what happens is she hangs out with you, and she says, wow, you know, this Angel guy is really thoughtful wow, he, I think he would be, he seems caring, he seems kind. I think he'd be a good father. Wow, he, you know, he's able to lead this kind of casual free lifestyle. I wonder if he, what resources does he have that allows him to do that? And then she likes you that way. So think of the girls who dress provocatively or the guys who do conspicuous consumption as advertising. They are the movie that's being advertised. You know, go see movie A or movie B on Friday and people hear about it from the advertisement and then they're inclined to go and see it. Now, there's another group of people that go to the theater and they say, okay, we want to see a movie. We go to the theater. Oh, here's another movie. You know, we haven't seen it being advertised, but it looks like a movie we want to see. Let's go see that movie. And I think that's really sort of the group that you are in and myself as well. I know sort of the psychology behind dating really well. And I'm the same way. I, I don't see the advantage in depleting resources through conspicuous consumption just to increase mating opportunities. Because like you, who understands the process as well, we can be just as successful in the mating market by conveying the things that women look for, commitment, resources, social status, et cetera, without having to, to do the costly method of signaling. And, and I talk about it in the book. Like I, I think one of the worst places to pick up a girl 
if you're just a regular guy is the bar because you know when you go to the bar all these guys are buying girls drinks they're all trying to be flashy and you know dress nice and pull up in their in their cars as a way to outcompete the other person and it's really a bad ratio for guys trying to meet girls because you walk into the bar everyone knows who the who the attractive girl is all the guys are now focused on that girl and they're all basically signaling through status signaling to get to gain the girl's attention now a better way would be to go to, say, a library or the grocery store, you know, some place on the beach, the, your neighborhood pool, if you live in a condo association, for example, and you just start having a regular conversation with the girl. And then when she realizes, wow, you know, this guy's thoughtful, he's kind, he's intelligent, he seems employed, he seems like he has his head on his shoulders. Now you become isolated. There isn't 50 other guys at the pool or at the Publix or at the whatever else the Publix is our local grocery store in Florida, but you know, where they're all trying to go. So it's, it's really a one-to-one ratio as opposed to a 30-to-one ratio. And you know, you're at the grocery store. You're not expected to be buying girls groceries where at the, at the bar, you're expected to buy the girl a drink. And if you don't, then you're looked at as somebody who's not willing to be generous or share resources. At this bar where a drink is $20, where if you went to the local wine store, it would be $5. Right. I think the interesting thing about that is we, we always talk about like different skill sets. Like you can learn how to approach women in a bar. You can learn how to do it in the daytime. And guys tend to not do it during the daytime in cafes, in the street or swimming pool or wherever, because it's just something a bit more out of their social world and what they're used to in social norms. But as you say, there's a lot less competition. So it makes it a lot easier if you do get over that and you learn that that skill set and you can approach in unusual situations and make it smooth and, and make it work for you. So in fact, the more unusual the situation, the better you're off because you're less likely to have any other guys competing with you at that immediate time. Of course, she's going to have other guys around like in her life. So it depends kind of when you met her in her life, like what else she has going on. But right then when you meet her, it does give you a better chance to start to get to know her, meet her and so on. Yeah. And another thing I tell guys too is, you know, when you go to the bar, oftentimes it's a very sort of meat market environment. It's like, hey, you know, baby, you look attractive. What are you doing? Are you saying, you know, it's kind of a pickup environment, right? And I tell guys, you know, approach girls the same way you would approach a guy for a regular conversation. So if you see a girl at the park, don't walk up to her and say, oh, you're beautiful. Are you dating anyone? Because that, that's going to turn her off instantly. She's going to think that you're only interested in her for the physical attributes that she happens to have. You have to think, well, if there was a guy there, you wouldn't say, hey, man, you're really attractive. Nice packs. Do you work out? You know, like it would be awkward for you to say that. But what would be a normal conversation to a guy, right? You would say, oh, you know, excuse me. Hey, I just moved to the neighborhood. Do you know where's the local grocery store around here? Or how far is the beach? You know, where's the freeway? Just something really general, non-threatening. Whatever you say to a guy, you say that to a girl. You go up to the girl who's maybe attracting like, Hey, excuse me. I just moved to the area. You know, do you know, are there any like restaurants around here? Is there like, or do you know where the, where the local post office is? You know, I don't know where I'm going. And then if she's interested, she's going to respond back, particularly if she's single and go, Oh, you know, where did you move here from? And she's going to start, and you're going to see that there's follow-up questions that are leading to a regular conversation. And then if you're talking to the girl for like 10 minutes, then you can say, Oh, Hey, well, listen, I I really like speaking, you know, talking to you. You know, I, I don't really know a lot of people here. You know, would you mind if I, gave you my number because it's less threatening and maybe we could hang out sometime or if you're more comfortable, give me your number. And then you text and then eventually set up a date, which seems very non-threatening to her because you didn't comment on her body type. You didn't try to ask her out. You were just asking about the area. She was trying to be helpful. And the fact that she asked more questions in return showed that she was interested in the guy. Now, if the woman's married and has no interest in the guy, she's not going to go, oh, where did you move here from? She's going to go, oh yeah, there's a, you know, the freeway is two miles west and there's a grocery store in the corner. And you say, all right, thanks. Have a nice day. I appreciate it. Enjoy the rest. And then you leave. And 
and that's the end of it. But, but that approach is much, much better than going to a bar where you have a handful of attractive women and you got 20 guys all trying to get her number. And the one who does is the one who buys her the most drinks and is able to signal resources and social status better than the other guys. Well, here's something else I think is interesting about that dynamic is that when you go into the bar, the women have made a very big effort in terms of makeup and in terms of what they're dressing and they can look very, very different, right? And to most men who aren't able to look past that, we'll say, because, you know, they haven't had enough experience kind of seeing perhaps a pretty girl in the club when she's all dolled up and then maybe seeing her in their day-to-day and having the comparison. So they go to the club and I feel like they have this inflated idea of what they're getting in terms of beauty, especially if they've had a few drinks. So their expectations are going to be very high. But if they meet them out during the day in more more normal situations, the sexual nature of the dress, the the skin revealing and so on, everything is, is turned down a bit. So I feel like the guys will be less biased in their opinion of what the girl is really like. And I think that has two advantages. First of all, if you meet her during the week, you're probably going to get something the same as you would expect it, and you're not going to have any surprise based on the difference between what you saw and, and what you're seeing now. And also, I'm wondering what you think of this is like, guys also watch a lot of porn. They're watching a lot of media and stuff where we have these perfectionist images of women. And perhaps when they're going into bars and they're they're thinking like, these are the types of girls I'm more interested in. And maybe they're thinking they don't really see that many hot women out during the day because they're not all dolled up. They're not, they haven't made all of this extra effort, which they're used to seeing in the press and everything. So they're like standards are being pushed up a little bit higher. Porn actresses obviously have a ton of makeup and all of this stuff when they're performing on set. So it kind of makes it into this situation where they feel like they're getting this higher value in clubs. But really the reality is that if they're out during the day, they're probably able to meet hotter women. Maybe they don't look as hot, but the reality is that they're hotter and probably higher quality in many areas or at least equal. But the guys don't realize it because they have this kind of bias working in terms of what they see in the club environment versus the daytime, which is daytime is also a little bit of a less uh, stimulated environment. And what I find also from experience is that when people are more stimulated, more excited, they tend to have this rosier view on everything that's going around them. You know, there's a bit more excitement about everything that's going around them. So they also value things as a bit higher as well. Yeah. And I think everything you're saying could be said from the counterexample of, of women and men and social status and resources. I mean, when you're the girl and you're out at the bar in that environment, you have the guy, you know, in his flashy car, dressed really nicely, buying you expensive drinks and food all night long, where if you meet the guy out and about at the park or at the grocery store, he's not buying you anything. So so you could use that same argument and say, well, you know, the girl's going to be let down because, you know, she's at the bar and the guy's just spent $300 on her. And the next day they're hanging out and he didn't spend anything. He didn't show up with a check for three, conceptually speaking, you know, a check for $300 or, or some gifts when he showed up. And now he's just a regular guy that's not dolling out resources. And, and to what you say about, about the porn actresses is, well, first of all, I don't think that pornography creates an image that guys then desire. So in other words, if pornography was only older, overweight women, I don't think guys would all of a sudden say, okay, I'm into older, overweight women because that's what's in porn. I think porn basically produces the ideal image of what guys want, which is youth and 0.70 waist-hip ratios and other cues of fertility and facial symmetry, uh, sexual willingness with low investment, etc. Things that that men respond to, you know, guys know that men respond to that. So, so the porn industry makes those movies, and then the guys kind of flock to that. And the opposite of that is sort of the romance novel industry, right? 
who primarily reads romance novels. It's almost always women. There's in the variety of different guys she's having sex with. It's usually one guy who overcomes a bunch of different obstacles to win her love. And they get in the, the climax, so to speak, of the romance novels when they profess love for each other and they go off and they get married. And what happens is, you know, women see these soap operas and these quote unquote chick flicks that sort of depict that. And then you can go back to your other your earlier argument about about when they go out to the bar. So they go out to the bar, here's this guy, he's handsome, he's dressed nice, he's successful, he's spending money on her. It's everything that she reads about in the romance novels. And then she's let down the next day when he's not waiting at her doorstep. So what you'll find all throughout evolutionary psychology is that men and women faced different adaptive problems over evolutionary time. Now, there's a reason why women and men are anatomically different. I mean, women have breasts, men don't. Well, why is that? I mean, women nurse. You know, the point of the breast is to be able to, to, to feed nutrition to newly born babies to help them get what they need to prevent disease and, and grow up healthy. But since men don't nurse, we don't have boobs. So the idea that we're physically different also uh, logically follows that our emotions or that our minds would be very different. And, and it's because we face different evolutionary problems or adaptive problems over time. Now, for men, we have unlimited sperm. Each ejaculate has millions of sperm. We produce active sperm from as low as, say, age 16 in puberty all the way up into our 70s. We can still theoretically get girls pregnant, and sperm is cheap. We can have unlimited kids. I can have sex with 10 girls a day for the rest of my life and have a million kids. Women, conversely, have a fixed number of eggs, and once they hit menopause, that's it. So, And women also have what's called a minimal obligatory parental investment, meaning that if I meet a girl walking down the road and we just happen to have low investment, indiscriminate sex with each other, that's the extent of my investment. I could climax in five seconds and be on my way and never see her again. But if she were to get pregnant, she has a minimal obligatory parental investment of nine months, and then she has to basically raise the kid. And she's not going to know the genetic quality. She doesn't know that I didn't have mental problems or, or health issues. She doesn't know my ability to provide protection and resources to maximize the likelihood of that child surviving. So a poor mate choice uh, for a woman is very, very costly. A poor mate choice for a man is is insignificant. And this is why guys go around and want a variety of different partners and women typically want to get to know the guy. It's not that it's not bad that women are quote unquote gold diggers, so to speak. It isn't bad. It's just natural, much in the same way that it isn't bad that men are dogs and want to have sex with everything. It's just that we're wired that way. And once people understand the differences, if I were a woman, I would do the same thing. Why would I date a janitor making $10 an hour when I can date a physician making a half a million dollars a year if I want my kids to get the best education and to live in the safest areas and to do other things that will maximize their probability of survival and reproduction? Great. Yeah, thanks for providing that counterexample of the men. So it's kind of like when you go into bars and, the, and these club environments, it's inflated in general. So it's, it's getting a bit away from the expectations of what the reality is going to be afterwards. And people should keep that in mind if they're women or, or they're men, like when they're going in these kind of areas and they're meeting people, it's not going to live up to that dream most likely. So let's take a step back and uh, talk a little bit more about your lifestyle. Where are you living today and what's your lifestyle like? I live in uh, Boca Raton, Florida. It's kind of like a country club community in the greater Miami area, you know, between Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach. I've sort of engineered a life of uh, kind of like you. I'm kind of a minimalist. You know, I, I've never liked waking up in the morning. So I engineered lives, whether it was through producing adult movies back in the day or through this education company that I have now, where basically I can wake up every day at 11. I can wear shorts and sandals. I can make my own schedule. I don't make nearly as much money as I could have made had I made more movies or hired more directors back in the day or had I expanded this current business to other cities and states. But it's never been about 
amassing wealth. It's been about engineering a lifestyle. In terms of dating, like I said, I don't believe for men that monogamy is natural, which gets back to the evolutionary explanations for that. I think most relationships, guys and girls are together and the guys are sort of secretly cheating and the girls don't know. And the girls could be too if the guys aren't investing physically, emotionally, or financially in the relationship. But I've noticed that a lot of people who tend to know a lot about sort of dating are single. (laughs) And I think the reason for that, and I sort of gauge this from you too, from talking to you, is that there's this ethical dilemma. I call it the ethical considerations of sexual conflict theory. So I don't want to sit there and sneak around on a girlfriend and be like, where were you? You know, oh, I was working late. Like, I don't want to have to cover my tracks for what I'm doing. You know, I, I would like to have a loving, caring relationship because I, I think that that's important. But I also want to be able to have variety unencumbered by having to lie. So I find personally for me, you know, it's never been hard for me to meet girls because I'm tall, you know, I'm personable, I'm outgoing, you know, I, I have a lot of the traits that women desire in men generally. So I know that if I upset one girl, there'll be another one down the road that I can easily just meet. So for me, I'm sort of chosen to sort of be single because then I can have the sort of low investment sex that I desire. And then as I come across women that I like more and I want to have more with, then I enter into relationships with them being completely honest that, listen, I'm not going to be monogamous. I just don't want to lie. And then usually what happens is the girl gets very attached and then she can't handle the fact that it's really an open relationship. And then she leaves me. Now it's a problem because I think deception is inherent in any successful relationship, which sounds bad, but it's true. And I think I need to do what most guys do. I just don't have the ethics to do it, which is to basically have a girlfriend that I, that I love and she loves me and we do things together. We take walks, we go to dinner and then to secretly when I'm at work or traveling, or if I have the opportunity as it arises, hook up with another girl and then just not tell her, but it's just, it's not my personality. I can't do it. So I would rather be single, uh, enjoy the variety and, and have sort of these interim sort of shorter term relationships that are intimate as opposed to being in a longer term relationship where I either have to forego the variety, which would just make me unhappy and resentful, or cheat like most guys do, but then I just don't want to deal with the ethical implications of that. So how long do your relationships last where you see a girl more than once or twice? Do you see a lot of girls just as a casual one night thing or like how does it? Well, it all depends. So before I got into the whole, before I knew all of this stuff and I was just a regular guy, my first girlfriend in college, I was with her for six years. And we, the only reason we broke up was because I wanted to know what it was like to have sex with other girls. I didn't want to cheat on her. So again, the ethical thing came in. Then I was engaged to a girl who was amazing and I still love her to this day, but she wanted to have kids. I never wanted to have kids ever. I mean, I realize most guys want to have kids. I've just, it's always been a, a sort of an, an assault on my freedom, so to speak. Like I, I just feel like kids are like an indefinite liability long-term. It's always going to cost money and there's always going to be something. And and all the actually the social science research surrounding kids actually shows that having kids is negatively correlated with happiness. <laughs> Seriously, Gilbert, I haven't read that. Dan Gilbert, That's terrible. True. I know. Talk to Dan Gilbert at Harvard. Uh, but the if you talk to any social psychologist, they'll tell you that the actual self-reported data on happiness because everybody rationalizes their experience. The people with is that for the guys or is that for both? Because my sister recently had a kid and she's the happiest she's ever been. I mean, she's she's more calm. She's doting on the kid every day and she's laughing all the time because the kid's hilarious. Just anecdotally, that doesn't make complete sense to me unless you're counting the teenage years. <laughs> so <laughs> well, yeah, the, well, the first three years are probably really nice. And then, you know, steadily is it gets more conflictual in terms of relationship and their independence and stuff. Maybe that provides the downside. 
Right. Well, I'll give you the download. I mean, this is actually in, in my book as well. I cited the research. Um, there's basically four different groups of parental happiness, right? So, or I should say relationship happiness. So you and your girlfriend are together and you say you're newlyweds and you're married and things are great. You are in the second level of happiness. Okay. Second of four. If you decide to have a child, what happens is you make an investment of happiness. So now you're up at three in the morning because the baby's crying. You got to get home from work and take in the preschool. Um, there's this investment of worry. You know, is the kid going to be healthy? Is he going to get kidnapped? You know, whatever it is that basically makes you less happy than before you had the kid. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Once the kid is actually grown and out of the house and on their own, being productive in society. So if your kid goes off and becomes a lawyer or a doctor or a poly, you know, does something beneficial for society, then what happens is you catapult from the third group to the happiest group. So the happiest group is actually people who have had children that are no longer in the house, or they're no longer with them, that have gone successful. Now, here's the other thing. If you have an adult child living at home, that is the least happy group. So what happens is, is you know that if you go from two, by having a child, you're making an investment of happiness from second group to third group. The question is, is what is the probability of your kid going, being successful and jumping in, driving you into the first group or living at home and driving you into the fourth group? And when you look at all of the data, the demographic data on adult children living at home, the trend line in the United States is that that trend line is increasing. So you have a much higher probability of actually going into group four than you do of going into group one. Um, now, the other thing, too, is remember, everybody rationalizes their experience. So people who had kids say, oh, I'm glad I had kids. You know, people who who, who had a, a cancer say, you know, I'm so glad I had cancer because I wouldn't have went to the oncology ward and I wouldn't have met my, my wife, who I met at the oncology ward. But what they don't realize is that if they didn't have cancer and they didn't go to the oncology ward, they would have met their wife at a tennis club or at the beach or, or somewhere else, you know. So people underestimate. It's like terrorism. You know, people say, why didn't the FBI prevent this terrorist attack? You hear about what happened, not about the 50 others that were actually prevented. But when you look in, in statistical terms, you know, there's a beta coefficient associated with each variable, and the beta coefficient associated with having children is slightly negative. So the idea is, is the subjective experience of people who are single. I mean, you take a guy like you. I mean, you, I don't know you, but you sound like a happy guy. They said, Angel, are you happy? I, I don't, I mean, you might, but I don't think you'd say, oh, I'm miserable, you know, I'm, I'm suicidal, right? And meanwhile, I don't think people with kids are miserable either. But when you take these objective criteria and ask people to subjectively evaluate their happiness, the people without kids are actually happier than the people with kids. But we need to have kids. I mean, we live in a society where where the social norms surrounding things, um, and this, Danny Gilbert talks about this as well, have to be in line with uh, the continuance of society. So we could argue, well, you know, everybody should do what we do. We should all be minimalists. We have more free time. Now work is hard, but we can't have that as a social norm because then the GDP would collapse, you know, employment would collapse. So we need everybody else to basically want to work really hard while you and I figure it out and be minimalists. Right, right, right. right. And, so for the audience out there, please don't do what we're doing. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and, and the same thing, like, I mean, people should get married and they should have kids because we need people to support the elderly population that they move into retirement. And we need all these things to happen. But I think once you really understand that ever, how it works, it's really social norms are, are geared more toward the betterment of society in a utilitarian sense and not so much to the betterment of the individual. Because there's a, if you really look at the social psychology research around happiness and even human mating, it's very different than what the sort of prevailing social norm is. Yeah. I think the question, I mean, the thing that comes back on this podcast time and time again, show, show and show, you know, after show, is that people don't ask questions about this stuff. We have the social norms, get married, have kids, get a job. And the first step is like, take a step back, 
and do some thinking about this, do some reading about it and find out what you actually think instead of just going straight diving into it uh, with the social norms and not thinking about it and potentially waking up 10 years later thinking, ah, oh, that was a huge waste of my time and it was the wrong thing for me. So let's go back again to your <laughs> lifestyle a little bit. Um, so how long do you typically see girls for? The whole point of this is like, um, I want to expose guys to different ways of living, different dating lifestyles, relationship lifestyles, because there is a relatively narrow social norm and they don't have ideas about what kind of design they could introduce into this kind of lifestyle. So you're probably a bit more of an outlier. You have a slightly different one. So I'd like them to kind of learn what that is. Let me preface that with an employment analogy, which is there are certain jobs that pay salary only, right? And then there are certain jobs that are commission-based, like oftentimes in sales. And when you look at the people that make a lot of money, oftentimes your top salespeople and organizations make more than the CEO because they're on a commission. And if you're not a good salesman, if you can't go out there and sell the product, you're not going to be – one, you won't be in sales. And if you are, you're not going to make a lot of money. So in order to make those crazy sales salaries – you have to be successful in the sales environment. So I see getting married or being in a relationship kind of like the salary job. Like it, it attracts a certain type of person that maybe, you know, if you're a short guy, you don't have a lot of personality, you don't have a lot of resources or social status, you're better off being in a relationship. It's kind of like having the salary, right? Now, if you're tall, outgoing, confident, personable, have some social status and resources, and you're interested in quote unquote money, or in this case, quote unquote variety, or being able to, to entertain, you know, having sex with different women, then you're likely to be successful in that sales environment. So if you want to make $800,000 a year, going a salary job route is probably not the way to go. I mean, you might become the CEO, but it's unlikely statistically. But as a sales guy, if you want to be a real estate broker or a headhunter or you know, any other salesperson, it's not uncommon for people to make easily six figures in those types of jobs. And so I think you have to really assess your own mate value before determining what to do. So if, if I wasn't sort of who I am in terms of my personality and height and all that kind of stuff, chances are I'd probably be in a relationship. Now, so I dated a girl off and on recently for about three years, and she's awesome. I mean, I do love her. We cuddled. We took walks together. Like, it was nice to have someone to depend on. But every time I went off and I hooked up with another girl, because, you know, I don't want to hide stuff. So I'm just like, I'm not available. Like she knew what I was doing. I could tell that it really hurt her. And that made me feel bad because I knew that the lifestyle that I was living was not the lifestyle that she wants to live. And, and the, another, the other analogy I use is kind of like marriage. I think when a guy and a girl get married, the woman's like, wow, you know, isn't this great? I have this husband. We're together for the rest of our lives. The guy's kind of like, well, I wish I could have sex with other girls. My wife's not going to let me. So I'm kind of monogamous just for her, but I'd rather not be. But oh, well, at least I'm with her, right? And when I look at swinger couples, it's the opposite. The guy's like, isn't this great? We're married. We have this great relationship. We get to have sex with all these other people. And the wives are like, well, this is okay. I mean, I love him. You know, I do this for him. Uh, makes him happy. I mean, I get to stay with him. Like, like, they'd rather not be swingers. They'd rather, you know, be monogamous. But... Is that the general rule? Just a bit of background. You spent time in the porn industry, 10 years as an actor, and... Uh, yeah, actor, producer, director, consultant, right. and in the and I, and I got into the porn business actually through the swinger world. I was oh, a swinger. Right. So how, how much swinging have you done in your time? Uh, I've been in, in the lifestyle since probably 2000, so about 14 years, and then the porn was like just about a year so after could, that. We haven't really talked in depth about swinging before. Can you give a quick background on that? Like, what, what does that actually mean? Does that mean you, if you have a set community, or you know, what is what is a swinger? 
basically swinging is kind of like a little subculture. Um, it's mainly couples, couples meeting other couples. And then some couples want to meet single girls or single guys. Now, obviously, just from our own conversation, there's not a lot of single girls in the lifestyle. So if you go to like a swinger event, you're going to see overwhelmingly couples. And then you'll see guys if that party allows single guys, which a lot don't. And then you'll see a very select handful of single girls. Now, the single girls are a little crazy. Like they're nutty to the point that even like on my profiles and certain swinger sites, I'm like no single women, just couples with a straight husband. Because a lot of times the girls that are single girls are like into drugs or they're just they're just in a bad place in life. I found kind of like adult film actresses. Now, what I've noticed about the couples is nine times out of ten. It's not like the couple just jumped into the lifestyle. The guy kind of nudged the wife. They talked about it for years before they finally went to the first experience and just watched other people having sex. I mean, it was a very slow process to get the girl into the lifestyle where she became comfortable. And then once she's in there, does sometimes she kind of get into it and she enjoys it? Or is as you described before where she's like just kind of doing it because she likes the guy? It's just like a male in a monogamous marriage. So think about a male in a monogamous marriage. He could have a great wife and kind of be happy, but he's still kind of wishing he could have sex with other girls. So it's kind of like this girl could still be enjoying the environment and happy with her husband, she's, but she's still kind of wishing that she doesn't necessarily need to go out and have all these different – and I've noticed too that when couples split up in the lifestyle and they're no longer together, the guy tries to remain in the lifestyle as a single guy, and most girls just leave the lifestyle entirely. Not all, but most. You know, So it, it's definitely uh, drawn upon evolutionary lines. And even when you look at profiles, like couple profiles on, on the swinger sites, there's like 50 – 48 are of the girl, and then there's like two of the guy. <laughs> like it's always about advertising the girl. You know, That's funny. That's like on OkCupid because there's some of these profiles where they're basically looking to hook up with single girls mostly. Mm-hmm. They're looking for a single girl to partake in their sexual lifestyle and there'll be a couple, but most of the shots are often of the girl. Of the girl. Yeah. Right. So to get started, what did you do? Are there some sites online? Yeah, well, what happened was I was date- – the first girl I dated in college for six years, I mean we used to go to like strip clubs together because she knew I wanted to hook up with the girls, but she wasn't cool. So she's like, well, let's just go to strip clubs and stuff. And then they got me a subscription to Hustler Magazine, and I was living in Irvine, California at the time working for some internet company. And then I noticed an article about a swingers club in Costa Mesa. It was called – I don't even know if it's still around. This is back in 2000, but it was called Panther Palace. So I did some research on Panther Palace, and this is before the internet was super popular. So you had to like mail out information. They would call you. You'd meet these people at a nondescript location. They would make sure that you weren't a cop. You know, Not that it was illegal. They were just trying to keep it under wraps. And then when I got out of grad school and I moved back to, uh, to Irvine, I basically went there and I checked it out. And sure enough, I hear this girl making these sex noises and there's like a gangbang. There's like a girl and like 20 guys and then other couples in other rooms hooking up. And then I met this guy, Maurice. And Maurice introduced me to a couple that he knew, and I hooked up with the, with that guy's wife on a couch. And then Maurice noticed that you know most people go get like a room. I was just doing it in front of everybody. I didn't care. And Maurice says, "Hey, you know, I know a guy in LA in the adult film business. He's a production manager for Wildlife Video. His name was Adam. He's like, do you want to be in an adult movie? And I was like, at the time, I was like 24, 25. I'm like, absolutely, that'd be fun. So he put me in touch with Adam, and then that's how I ended sure, up getting into sure, sure. the... Uh, so today, in terms of swinging, what do you do? You go, are there some specific sites, big sites that people go to and use? There are, and I'm not going to give those out. And the reason for that is that the lifestyle is a very, um, very tight-knit community. And what we don't want in the lifestyle is a bunch of horny guys just signing up so they can try to get... You know what I mean? Like, obviously, the people that are listening to yeah. the site want dating advice. You know, how, you know, how can they interact better with girls? What we don't want is an influx of single guys coming in that don't understand like the rules. Right. But 
Yeah. Right, right. It, it sounds clearly it's for couples. And we get all types listening to this, by the way. We have married guys. We have like long-term relationship guys. We have, we have all sorts. So but I understand they can Google around, but are there basically like a few big ones and, and then you have some niche ones or how is it? It's mainly, there's probably like, a lot of it's regional. Like if you're in the Northwest or the Southeast, like depending on where you are, like a lot of people will be on one site and they'll meet me because they did a search and there's maybe like a couple profiles in this area. And then I'll tell them, oh, have you looked at this site? And they're like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, that, that's the regional site for this. So there's probably like one or two big sites in every region of the U.S. It's all over the world. I'm just talking U.S. And it's maybe like the West Coast, Southeast, the Midwest, the Northeast, and like the Central Plains. Um, so probably like five different regions. But it's a very – there's a practice to it that you have to really kind of – be indoctrinated in the sense that, you know, so many guys, a lot of couples that they'll put on there, no single guys on their profiles because they're tired of guys relentlessly calling them or the guy has to understand that his role is really just a, almost like a toy to the relationship. So you could have sex with the hottest girl in the world and, and most guys will like keep endlessly calling the couple and they'll have to like change their phone number and be like, you know, screw these single guys. Like, you know, we, we hooked up with them and then they don't leave us alone. Like they showed up at our house, you know, our kids were home. Like they're not cool. It's a very, <laughs> no, now, now the guys that are cool, yeah. you know, guys like me that have a lot of validations that have been in the lifestyle for a yeah. while and we understand how the game works. Um, then people know to, and there's like a validation system. So, Oh, I, I met Dave and mm. you know, he was great. So it's like referral, know. like friend, friendship based or yeah, it's kind of like, you know, on eBay, on eBay, you buy something. Oh, and do you have like, ratings you and stuff celebrate. on the site? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like, oh, he was great. He wasn't great. And, and the other thing, too, is like a lot of couples will tell you that it's hard for couples to meet couples because everybody has to like everybody. So oftentimes they like guys like myself or what they call preferred single guys or respectful single guys because most guys, if you're personable and outgoing, can get along easily with both the guy and the girl. And then they they welcome you into the relationship. And single girls they like, too, but it's just really hard to find single girls that are sane and not on drugs or some other situation like that. But it's definitely growing. There's definitely a lot more people in the lifestyle now. There's more sites than there ever was. And I think that people are sort of adopting this sort of non-monogamy lifestyle just because of the market conditions that are happening in the dating world. One, I think I've spoken about this on the podcast before. One situation I've come across, a girl I met, she had to open her marriage up and start going to swing clubs and stuff because her uh, husband was cheating on her constantly and she wanted to keep the marriage together for the kids and because she loved them and so on so she was just like okay let's open the relationship up so is that like a very typical situation where um that happens i mean i talk in my book about guys could be in the best relationship ever and if they have the opportunity they'll still cheat knowing that if they won't get caught women cheat for a reason so in other words this woman probably wasn't cheating until she discovered that her husband was cheating on her or that her husband wasn't emotional yeah it was slightly different i mean she wasn't interested in cheating she was like, you know, if, if you want to have sex with more women, fine, but let's be open about it. Sure. And that's good. I think, and I talked to a lot of these girls or wives in the lifestyle and I asked them, I'm like, I'm like, would you rather do this with your husband together? Or would you rather have him kind of go off and do his own thing? And you just don't know about it or you stay at home. And invariably the women say, no, no, I want to know. I'd rather participate. Even though they don't really like it, they're like, I want to be part of it. I want to know what's going on. But what's surprised, what's interesting is, the girls who don't know what's going on are actually happier. When I, when I look at women or I, I survey women where I know their husbands are cheating, because let's say I know the guy and let's say the wife doesn't know, she seems much more happy or much more content believing that her husband is monogamous. So if you read my book, it really, really gets into that. And, and I might as well plug it while I'm on here. If you go to obscenethoughts.com, you can you know read the book reviews, read the editorial reviews from Kirkus Reviews, from Ford Clarion. I mean, it, 
it really has a good evolutionary explanation of the differences of men and women. And then it, it says the best way for relationships to happen. And really what it is, is my observation is that the best relationships are where the guy and a girl are in a perceived monogamous relationship where, where, you know, the girl believes it's monogamous and the guy basically subtly cheats. And I think that's most relationships today. And that's where both parties are maximized. And then I use a, an analogy of poison. And I say, for example, let's say I say, okay, Angel, I'm going to poison your cereal, okay? And you're okay with dying. You're like, that's cool, no problem. You, you're suicidal, I'm gonna poison your cereal, you're okay with it. So I put poison in your cereal, you eat the cereal, and then you die, right? What killed you? The poison. Now, what if I didn't tell you that I was poisoning the cereal? So you had no knowledge, and I was poisoning your cereal, you ate the cereal without the knowledge, you're still gonna die because it was the agent of the poison that killed you. And conversely, if I told you that I was poisoning you, so you believed in your head you were being poisoned, but I never added any poison to the cereal, you're not gonna die because there's no poison in it. Now contrast that with infidelity. If you're a wife and your husband tells you he's not cheating, but he's cheating on you every day in theory, every day he hires a different escort to meet him at work and have sex with him on lunch, if the wife never finds out, even though his penis entered a million vaginas, she is content and happy as can be. Meanwhile, if he says, let's say he never cheated ever, he's been completely faithful and he goes home and he just gets the psychological condition to be deceitful and says, honey, uh, I have to tell you something. I, you know, I've cheated on you with like 200 girls. He just, he just said this thing and wants to see her reaction. She is going to cry and be miserable and probably end the relationship even though he never cheated. He just gave her the perception. So it's not like the minute a guy has sex with another girl, the wife has a heart attack or the wife, the minute the penis passes the vaginal plane that she passes out, right? That would be a reason to say, okay, don't cheat. There's a, there's a, there's a consequence, but the real consequence, unlike the poison is the knowledge or the belief that your husband is cheating, irrespective of whether it's actually happening. Right. What do you think of intuition though? Cause I think a lot of the time where the guy doesn't say anything i think women often have suspicions like you were saying like in your relationships like when um you're not available you know or something's going on they'll start making the assumption that you were of other girls now your situation is a bit more unique because you, you've told them that's like that but in a married couple when things start adjusting and he's not there a few times and there's little things like that girls tend to build intuition and i think a lot of women will pick up on some kind of things you know we're kind of evolutionary programmed if you listen to the you know if you read the research to kind of pick up on these kind of things well take a guy like tiger woods i mean he was cheating with porn stars and escorts forever his wife never knew about it she was happy until one of the porn girls called his wife and told her and then she learned about it and then she flipped out even though he was doing it forever right so the thing is is I think you got to remember, though, just because a guy wants to have sexual variety doesn't mean he can attain it. If he's a if he works at McDonald's and he's short, all the sexual variety in the world, but it doesn't mean girls are going to have sex with that guy. Now, that guy that's low status is more likely to have a normal recurring schedule where the wife says, oh, how come you weren't home at exactly six o'clock when you normally show up? If you're Tiger Woods or a professional athlete or a politician or someone who travels a lot for business, the regular schedule is that you work late till 10 o'clock or that you are traveling and that you're gone and the person doesn't know. And it's those people who are most desired by females, the social status and resources that are the ones that have the opportunity and they're the ones that are able to realize it. So if you're an attorney and you're working on a big case and you're at the office every day till 10, if you sneak out at eight and hook up with your paralegal and then still come home at 10, nothing changes from the wife's perspective. So is your perspective just to get this like tied down, like for men, basically... If you're in a monogamous relationship, the only two reasons are going to be because A, your mate 
value isn't high enough for you to be able to get easily access to other opportunities that you're not attractive enough to women um, that you're interested in, or B, that you're just following social norms and you're, you know, you're kind of doing the right thing because you feel like it and you just happen to have, have a bit more self-discipline than uh, the majority of people. So you're successfully doing it and not cheating. Well, I, I would say this. I would say that there are different relationship options that people can choose from. They can choose to be in a monogamous relationship or marriage. They can choose to be openly open. They can choose to be single their whole lives. They can choose to do whatever they want. Why people make their decisions is really up to them. Now, if you are hypothetically a high social status male with resources and you choose to be monogamous, I mean, you could be monogamous and you could be secretly like, this kind of sucks. I wish I wasn't monogamous and kind of be sadistic to yourself, if you will, much in the same way that a girl could go to the swingers club with her husband and gangbang these guys because it makes her husband excited and not really like it, but do it for him. She could do that and just personally not be sort of fulfilled in that nature. Or conversely, if you are a guy like my friend Ruben, who doesn't do very well with women, you know, if he meets a girl that shows him interest and wants to be with him, he will jump all over that and commit to her and marry her and be with her. And he won't cheat, but not because he's chosen not to cheat, because nobody else is coming up to him and giving him the opportunity. And if they did, then he's likely to cheat and probably feel guilty because of the social norms surrounding that um, and then feel bad for that. Right. So do you think any guy who has a really attractive woman come up to him and kind of present a very straightforward opportunity that's going to be kept secret is going to accept that? As Chris Rock says, I think men are as faithful as their options. And if the guy believes that there is no way that his wife would ever find, I mean, obviously like guys know that girls don't just come up to them and say, excuse me, can I give you a blowjob? Right? So if I, if I'm walking down the road and some girl comes up to me and says, excuse me, can I give you a blowjob? I'm thinking, yeah, I want the blowjob, but this is weird. What's up? Is this a setup? Am I, is there a hidden camera somewhere? Is somebody trying to expose me? You know, I would think something was up. Now, conversely, I would argue if you're a married physician and you're traveling and you're at a bar and you're talking to another girl who happens to be traveling and you guys are sharing drinks together and after two hours of conversation, it's the end of the night, people are going to go back to their hotel rooms for the conference the next day and the woman puts her hand on, the, uh, on his leg and says, okay, um, well, if you want to you know, hang out later, I'm in room 212 and then she goes upstairs. I think there's a very high likelihood in the you know, upper 90% that she's going to have a knock on her door within the next half an hour. Mm. Have you heard of the work of uh, David Data? I'm not familiar with David yeah, Data. He, he wrote a book called The Way of Superior Man. He's got a bunch of courses out there. Um, he doesn't do it anymore. There's another woman doing it. But um, So I've been following his stuff, and he'll say that basically men will do what you're saying, okay, on, on a first level. But when they get to a certain evolution, when they will, he's, he calls it stages, when they get to another stage, they'll start to make a different choice based on things that are more important than sex to them, like their purpose, whether it's a, it's a business or it's some other endeavor they have, which they will see more important. So if you take the example of Tiger Woods, right, he had a lot to lose in terms of reputation, which obviously hurt him a lot in terms of his career and, you know, his financial opportunities in terms of sponsorship and all of this kind of thing, right? So his behavior had negative implications beyond just his relationship with his wife, like far, far more for him because he's a celebrity. And we see that with, with most celebrities, right? They got negative re repercussions. Important to also frame that that's because he was in the United States. If you look at Nicolas Sarkozy, the French president, he's notorious for having affairs and there's no social stigma because... French presidents Europe. always do that. <laughs> I think all presidents do that, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Bill Clinton <laughs> did it too, of course. <laughs> so I don't think we expect that of Obama, but uh, maybe you could tell me more about 
So I kind of see his point of view. Like lately, I got to a stage where I basically, I felt like I've played enough. And this has been going on two years. And I felt like I had a lot of stuff to do in life. I'm busy. Um, So I went for a period. I've had relationships for two years, monogamous. Another one I had for, uh, you know, just a a few months. And I decided to move away from that. Uh, Again, monogamous. And then these were decisions I made after having a very much player, multiple polyamory kind of focused lifestyle for many years, you know, nearly a decade. Because other things became way more important to me. And another hookup was just another hookup. I mean, it really doesn't add, there are some special hookups and there's some special experiences. But overall, it it didn't really mean that much to me anymore. Uh, I don't know what you think about that. Sure. Well, I'll comment on that. Well, first of all, I think there's two things. Another thing that's probably going on with you that you didn't mention is that as you age, your testosterone levels decline and your testosterone is really your mating hormone that, that makes you really go out and seek. Not- I checked that. I checked that. And like I boost mine is like 900, 1000. Oh, you boost your testosterone? Yeah, I work on it naturally just to keep it up there. I'm, I'm 40 now, so I need to kind of do things to make sure it stays high. Well, one thing about testosterone, just so you're, you're aware and your viewers, is what happens is your body produces a, norm, a natural amount of testosterone. If you supplement that artificially, what happens is your body will make a lower natural testosterone production to offset. And then what happens is if you stop that supplement, your body never returns to that original level Agreed. of producing. Right, so right, right. When I'm talking about boosting, I'm talking about natural methods. And we've, we've had guys oh, talking about this. Okay. Uh, right, we've All had right. guys talking about this and the dynamics of the body and so on. So we've kind of covered these uh, these things before. We don't recommend taking testosterone. Okay. So to your earlier point is, uh, I agree with you to an extent. So for example, I'm the same way. I mean, I miss like the last girlfriend I was hanging out with walking around and doing stuff. And I have opportunities to hook up that oftentimes I don't do as much. And the analogy I use is this. See, most women, they look at it as a binary. He cheated on me or he didn't cheat on me, irrespective of the frequency of cheating. And I look at it, I look at sexual variety for men like variety in food. So let's say you just moved to a new area or you're like a young guy. You want to try all the different restaurants. Let's go to Miami. Let's go to West Palm Beach. Let's have pizza, Italian, Mexican. You're trying all these different foods. And then eventually, you know, you're in your mid-30s, 40s, and you're just kind of like, all right, I'm sick of going out to eat all the time. Let's just eat at home and just be healthy and go to the gym, right? And a lot of people do that. And they eat healthy. And, and that's like being in the, the normal monogamous relationship. You're eating at home most of the time. Now, just because you used to go out every night, which is the guy who, like you, let's say, 10, 20 years ago when you were in the polyamory kind of player lifestyle or how I was, that doesn't mean that you're never going to go out again. So my argument with your case, based on people that I know that are sort of in your situation, is that maybe 20 years ago, you were having dozens of partners per year. Now you're going to have one or two extra pair partners per year as opposed to 20, so to speak. So I think it's unlikely that even with your experience and, and what you say, that if you got married today, that you would never have an affair for the rest of your married life. I think that that's, that's not likely. I think I'm not going to say you're going to go off and start hooking up with all her friends and you right. know, trying I to don't know. Yeah. Like, I, I think like you, I have the, the morally, the kind of ethical thing that, that would get in the way. So I'm not even sure if marriage is, is for me, uh, to be honest. And right now I'm in a, a more of a dating period again. Right. So you go through phases, but I was just talking about the idea that you do go through these phases and maybe it, it becomes long-term and maybe something else becomes more important than just having sex. Right. right. And that's what I'm saying. So in other words, things become less important than just going out to the bar and getting drunk with your friends or just going out and getting food. But it doesn't mean that you're not going to go out still and get food every once in a while. So I agree with you that as people age, myself, 
included and you. And in hearing you talk, I hear a lot of things mirrored in sort of how I live my lifestyle today is that if I'm with a girl tomorrow, right, like dating, I don't have this urge to just go out and have sex with everybody like I used to, like when I was in my 20s. However, from an ethical perspective, I want to know that I have the option, okay, if it arises, to have a variety opportunity without feeling guilty or bad for taking it because it's natural for me to do so, even though I don't anticipate that happening, right? But if it does, I want to know that I can take it without having to come back and feel guilty or, or bad. And, and I think what's funny is, is I think you and I have this same kind of approach to things because one, we're knowledgeable about this and we've had a lot of experience. I don't think this is just you and me. I think this is all men. Again, you and I are in a position where we're, we're able to where we're able to get more partners or maybe somebody else wasn't. But I don't think you and I are unique. I think we have the male brain. I think most females have the female brain. And even females in the porn business, you know, I used to joke with my friends. I'm like, if you want to get laid, don't hang out with a porn girl. She's had sex all day long. The last thing she wants to do is have sex. So if you want to you want to get laid, go hang out with a vanilla girl on OkCupid or Plenty of Fish and take her out once or twice. And you have a much better chance of getting laid than hanging out with a porn girl unless you're going to pay the porn girl. Hey, Dave, so we're on part two of the interview. Thank you for making your time available again. Thanks for having me on the show again. Yeah, it was a ton of, we, got, we were like talking about so much last week. Um, so definitely wanted to get you back on. So I thought what we do today is start looking at the porn star lifestyle. You've obviously spent quite a bit of time there and have a reasonable understanding of it. How long were you in the porn world or actively and what kind of roles did you have for how long? I was in there a little over a decade. I mean, I was working at a bank to start and I met a guy, as I said on the last show, is I, I met this guy at a swingers club who thought that I would be good for the industry. So when I went down there and did my first shoot, I then uh, networked with everybody on the set and kind of made things happen. But I didn't quit my job at the bank for about another two years after that. So I was kind of doing it part time, kind of moonlighting. How much was that? Was it just kind of once per month? It's interesting to get like, how often are actors doing work? Typically, it depends. I mean, it, being a porn actor is like like being a realtor, right? If you're a real estate agent, you could be working all the time. You could be a lot of people have their licenses; they don't do anything with them, you know. So, it's really just individual. It's really like any you're basically a salesman, to be honest. I mean, you're you're going around to the different producers and the agents and trying to basically hustle for work. I would say that when I first started, it was probably like you know one or two a month because nobody knew who I was, and I was just kind of. Uh, calling around and going to the parties. I met this guy, Chase, uh, Chase Styles in the business. And he, uh, this guy like just took me under his wing and started introducing me to all the producers, took me to the AVN show in January. And then all of a sudden I started working like once a week and I'd have to try to finagle things with my boss and make excuses at the bank. Like, Oh, I got to pick up someone at the airport. I have to leave early. I was, you know, I was living in Irvine at the time, which is like a one hour drive from LA more, you know, oftentimes in rush hour traffic. So I'd like come in, I'd come in real early so I could leave early. I'd take a Friday off so I could come to the bank on Saturday. And then, um, eventually I just told my boss what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) He he wasn't really happy about it, but he was like, you know, you can only do what you're going to do. And then eventually HR, the human resources people found out. And then they, I just told them, I'm like, listen, I mean, I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm like, there's a law in Florida that you can't, fire people for lawful off-duty conduct. I'm not using company resources. I'm not doing anything on company property. As I said, look, I mean, if you fire me, I'm going to challenge it. <laughs> you know, so anyways, they didn't fire me. And uh, I just started getting more work that it, was just, it just made sense for me to, to quit the bank. Uh, so about two, right around 2003, I got in like right around 2001. 2003, I quit the bank and just went full-time as a performer 
for a couple of years. And then I really. And how much work did you have to go full time? Uh, I would say I was working three, four times a week, you know? Wow. Yeah. And how, how long was each? What is a full work day? Is it you're literally on set for eight hours and then shooting different well, scenes? Well, and... it depends on the type of shoot. So it's kind of like, if you, again, if you're like a plumber and you go in there and you say, what's the typical work day? Well, it depends. Does somebody just need to fix a leaky toilet or are they remodeling a bathroom? You're talking 20 minutes versus you know, a whole day's job or several day job. So if you're shooting for a big company like Vivid or at the time, you know, Digital Playground, VCA, these companies, it was like an all day thing. You'd have to get to the set really early. You know, you might do your scene, but you have to stick around because you might have a dialogue later where you're interacting with other actors to have the plot come together. And those those shoots typically paid more money. They'd probably, yeah, I'd probably make like maybe five or 600 a scene just to, to do that feature role. Uh, whereas if I did what's called a gonzo shoot, which is you basically just show up, you know, pretty much what you watch on the internet. You know, there's no plot. You just show up, do the scene and leave. You know, that you could be in and out completely. The minute you arrive the set, the minute you leave set, it's maybe four hours, half of which is paperwork and waiting around for the girl to do her makeup and stills and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it was a really cush lifestyle. You could just bring a book. I just bring a book to set and read or just talk to people or just call people from my phone, just, you know, network with the other performers that were at shoots before or after to try to get more work and uh i actually preferred making getting paid a lower rate like getting paid like 400 to do a gonzo shoot as opposed to getting paid five or six to do a feature because if i can do if i can make 400 dollars and be there for four hours right only doing like you know maybe an hour and a half worth of work in the end not including paperwork to me that was more advantageous than yeah. getting paid five or six hundred so making you know 25 to 50 percent more but now you're there three times the amount of time but you know the features right it sounds like the hourly rate works out better for the gonzo it does but the, on the other side though it's the feature stuff that really gets distributed that ends up on cable in multiple countries you know it, it has the widest distribution which means that you get more notoriety which is more likely to lead to marketing deals if someone's gonna you know create a product after you or you're gonna get a contract with a company they're looking more for name recognition um so it's better than that. Okay. So just backtracking Gonzo, what does what Gonzo Gonzo is just means there's no plot. You just show up, do the scene, and leave. I mean, like, you know, if you went to, like, you, you know, like a, a basic porn website, like, you know, hornysurfergirls.com, that up, I should have yeah. beach, hey, you're hot, let's go back to my place. Like, there isn't a plot. You know, there's no, it's not It's not geared toward women. Where these these feature companies, like Vivid and VCA, there was a huge storyline. Like, it was like, a, it's almost like a soap opera. So you'd have to show up and pretend the girl crashed the car and you're mad and now you're taking her to the auto mechanic where, you know, the next scene is the auto mechanic and the girl in the waiting room. Like, um, you know, there's this, there's this big plot because that appeals more to sort of the female consumer. So that's targeted at couples... I'm, I'm yeah, usually. I mean, Vivid is known, um, VCA and Digital Playground, these companies are, are known to target um, couples. And you also get better distribution if there's a plot. I mean, you can you can go to the softcore cable channels. You know, you can they do shoot a hardcore and a softcore cut. When you're doing like a gonzo shoot, there's never a softcore cut. It's just a hardcore cut, which is why it takes a shorter amount of time to shoot it. You know, I mean, they, they say about 30% of the adult content market is women. So... That thirty percent is primarily going after the the, the more storyline based content as opposed to just the Gonzo content. Although there are women who watch the Gonzo content as well. So this is women who are buying; they're paying for subscriptions online, or they're buying DVDs and, and so on. So, but is that based as a couple, or is it really women going out and buying this stuff directly? We don't know. Yeah, I mean, we we just know that either the credit card is tied. I mean, who knows? She might be there with her husband. They might be on the female's computer at the boyfriend's house. 
just anecdotally, it seems like a lot of women, you know, like if you just hang out like in a porn shop, just a regular shop, but you kind of see the traffic that comes through, you're mostly going to see men. Your second most common demographic will be couples, and then you'll see single girls. But you don't really see a lot of single girls hanging out in the porn shop, although they are there on occasion. Maybe that's more of a social, they kind of don't want to be seen there. Would they buy it more on the internet? Yes, absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah. In terms of social implic, I mean, how long were you an actor for? Uh, over a decade. I mean, I, I, I never stopped. I decided to start my own productions because I could have control over the movies, not the talent that we used. So the whole time I was in the business, except for a small brief period where I actually met this girl that I got engaged to, and I didn't want to, like, freak her out by continuing to do uh, porn juice. Um So she didn't know, just, that, just she didn't know you no, were no, no. A, a porn actor? No, no, she huh? knew. So No, no, she knew when I met her. But then what, the thing is, is I told her because, like, we had such a great connection. I'm like, listen, I'm like, for you, you know, I'll just stop doing shoots. I'll just, I'll just produce and direct and we'll use other guys. I mean, we used other guys anyways, but I mean, like, I would just not do any scenes because I knew that that would be, you know, important to her and, and it was actually it allowed us more time. I, I kind of walked away from the whole thing. I just hired people to produce and direct and do everything. And we were just off, you know, hiking and traveling around uh, the country, really. It was a great experience. I don't have anything bad to say about the business or about my time in it. Great. So what were the social implications, if any, that you kind of came... Just you know, from just, being in just, the business? Yeah, just from being in the business. How did your lifestyle change? What things did you notice? Well, for me, nothing really changed. I mean, it changed, but it, I didn't care that it changed. I anticipated the change. It's kind of like saying, you know, if you climb a mountain, I know it's going to get colder. I know I'm going to have less access to bathrooms with running water. Like, I mean, this is just now I'm not surprised by the change as I go up the mountain because that, that's why I'm walking up the mountain. So I knew that there were going to be that there would be difficulty, say, having relationships after the business or, you know, that there were a lot of girls would be opposed to that or that, you know, trying to get a regular mainstream job would be difficult as a result of the past experience in the business. But I, I embraced those challenges. I wanted to address those challenges. So I, I wanted to, I knew that when I came in that these things would happen and that I would have the opportunity to go on shows like this and, and talk to a wider base or, or make arguments about why it shouldn't be an issue if people make it an issue or, you know, how it, for example, if somebody, uh, let's say you're working at a bank and the company finds out and they fire you, let's say you live in a state where they don't have lawful off-duty conduct statute and the company says, oh, you know, we found out that you used to be in the porn business, so now you're fired. You can no longer be an accountant for our company, right? Well, why is that a bad thing? You know, if you're a teacher and they fire you because you were in the, in the porn industry, right, what's the argument? Well, you could say, well, you know, the teacher is setting a bad role model for the kid. The kids, first of all, the kids, don't find out. It's always the parents you find out. But if a parent were to find out and say, hey, we should fire this guy, it's a bad role model for the kids. Why is the argument of being a bad role model only limited to the domain of human sexuality? I mean, we have role models with regards to uh, nutrition, physical fitness. I mean, why don't we fire overweight teachers? Why don't we fire people who are eating poor diets or fast food? Though you know, we discovered you went to McDonald's for lunch, you're fired, you're a bad role model for nutrition for the kids, right? Like, why just sexuality? The other argument could be, well, kids, it's illegal for them to perform in pornography or to consume pornography. So you're sort of producing this product or you were involved with this product that is unlawfully consumed by a minor. And you go, okay, well, if you're going to run with that argument, what if somebody used to own a bar? If they used to own a bar and they don't own a bar anymore, even if they currently own a bar, meaning there's a teacher who moonlights, for example, as an adult film actress or producer, why should the person who owns the bar be allowed to continue teaching, but not the person who produces pornography? Because we know that to consume alcohol, you need to be 20 years of age. We know to consume pornography, you need to be 18 years of age. So if the social threshold 
is higher in terms of an age limit, then you would think that the penalty would be commensurate with that, that you would say, well, therefore, the teacher who owns the bar should actually suffer a harsher penalty than the person who owned a porn video. Or the argument that, well, we don't know that you were in the porn business, you might show them porn or try to recruit them in the porn. It's like saying, well, you own a bar, you might try to give them alcohol or try to entice them to go into a bar. Like, what professional would do that? And just because anybody could entice someone into pornography or entice somebody into alcohol, irrespective of the industry that they worked in. I mean, I could work at a martial arts company and try to like give somebody alcohol. There's no correlation between the two. It's sort of what, what they call an irrational fear because people are just sort of afraid to discuss the topic. So if I take someone like myself that has no criminal background, I mean, I'm very vanilla, you know, for the most part, like I'm, <laughs> I'm as boring as it gets aside from my colorful industry or adult industry experience, the person that sort of bringing the conversation forward to be like, you know, what's the problem with adult content? Nobody is forced to do anything they don't want to do. You pick your scene partners. I, somebody could, an agent, when I was a performer, could call me up and say, You're, you know, we have, I have a scene with so-and-so, do you want it or not? And I can say no or yes. I never did anal shoots because I just, I'm not interested in anal sex. Actually, I did one, but it wasn't supposed to be. Like the girl just wanted to do it. And she was really hot and I was kind of feeling different that day. So I'm like, yeah, what the hell, let's try it, you know. But it was still my complete choice. Um, and a lot of people don't get that. And, you know, there was Belle Knox was this performer uh, from Duke University. She was in the news about a year ago because they found out she was doing porn to pay her tuition. And everybody thought, why is this really bright girl who got it in the Duke doing tuition? And she very rationally said, why would I take out student loans that are paying back for the rest of my life or put a huge financial burden on my family when I realize my premium, being a young, attractive girl, that I can make $1,000 a day because they pay the girls more in, in a porn video and have no debt, you know? And everybody flipped out and went crazy. And she's like, listen, I, I choose my scene partners. I don't do anything I don't want to do. I can leave the set at any time. All these things she's saying are true, but there's this sort of body of sort of social conservatives that are against just the fundamental idea of pornography that they just discount that without really listening to what she's saying. Let's talk quickly about the economic financial rewards. How much were you making a week and someone like Bell Knox, how much would she be making? Well, it depends what what your role is. And if you're a performer, the girls typically make about twice what the guys make. So if a girl is making twelve hundred on a shoot, the guy's probably making six hundred. If the girl's making six hundred on a really small amateur shoot, the guy's probably making three hundred. So the general rule of thumb is the girl makes about twice what the guy makes. It's just a function of how much she works. I mean, the thing is that the guys, even though they make a lower rate, they work much more often. So for example, a lot of these internet sites have a theme. Like there was a site called the MILF Hunter. It's about this guy that goes around and tries to hook up with these older women. It's always the same MILF Hunter. But once you're the MILF, you only work for the shoot once. Like, oh, we already shot Jennifer, you know, so we don't need the user again. We've already, I still want to see the same girl over and over and over again. So you always see the same guy. So even though the guy makes half the girl, makes half the scene at the rate the girl does, the guy works 100 times longer and the guy can be in the business forever. You know, a lot of guys that come in the business, they never leave. Um, a lot of girls, you know, they're only in for a couple shoots or maybe a couple years, and then they're done once they've shot for all the producers. Nobody wants to shoot them anymore, um, or they have to up what they do. Maybe a girl didn't do anal scenes. Now, now she will. So now she opens up to a whole other set of producers that she didn't shoot for before. Where the guys can always shoot for whoever. It's kind of a like a bulk discount deal, right? Like the guys get to work a lot more, so you know they're getting less rate. Plus, guys naturally want to do. I mean, there's an evolutionary component that it, it benefits us. You know, if I go out to a bar and I meet a girl and I have sex that night, 
and I go to the same bar and I meet a different girl and have sex. I go to the same bar the next week and go to a different girl and have sex. And none of these girls call me or I never see them again. If my friends say, let's go out to a bar, I'm like, let's go to that bar. That was a great bar. I love that bar, <laughs> right? And Because I'm getting the variety where if it's a woman and she goes to a bar and she meets this guy and he gives her some spiel and she goes home and hooks up with him and he never calls her. And then she goes again the next week, meets a different guy, believes all the things he says, goes home, has sex with him, and he doesn't call her. And her friends say, let's go to that bar. The girl's like, screw that. That bar is a bunch of losers. Let's go somewhere else. <laughs> because she doesn't want the lack of investment or the lack of commitment. So it, it, porn is kind of antithetical to sort of female involved sexual psychology. But it's very in line with, with men. So there's a lot of guys that would do porn if they could. The only reason they pay guys is really so they're available. I mean, like, I would have done it for free, like part-time, you know, here and there. But I had to prioritize the bank at the time, right? The only thing that allowed me to quit the bank so it was available to all the producers was to get paid some amount that would allow me to sustain myself. And it's kind of consistent with with what they pay male performers, you know? Why do uh, women get into the porn industry? Money. Or, or is money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, but but it's, it's normal. I mean, like, again, it's not in a women's evolved sexual psychology. So think about what a lot of like women typically like weddings and children and things like this, right? So if you're a girl, I'm sure there are plenty of women out there. Uh, and I don't have any research to support this. I'm just anecdotally, logically uh, thinking about this. But I would suspect that there are a lot of women that if you said, hey, you know, my, I'm getting married. Will you help me plan my wedding? <laughs> that there are a lot of girls that would do that for free. Or that there are a lot of girls that would maybe uh, take care of a baby for free. I don't mean like long-term priorities, like a little baby, you know, play with them for the day and, you know, just hang out with the kid. I think there's a lot of women that would welcome that or seek that out, right? Where for guys, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think if, if, a, if a guy, if I called you up and said, hey, Angel, I'm getting married, will you plan my wedding for me? You'd be like, uh, yeah, dude, why don't you just do it? Or how much are you going to pay me? I have no interest in doing that aside. You know, there's no natural genetic interest for that unless you're going to pay me. And, and that's how women are. Like if you didn't pay women for porn, there'd be no female performers. And this is why women are also paid so much more money because girls will naturally, just from an economic theory perspective, go to something else that doesn't require them to go against their evolutionary psychology. So if you're a girl and you can do porn for $1,000 a shoot or you can be a barista at Starbucks for $1,000 a day or not even, you know, whatever, like overwhelmingly they're going to go to Starbucks. But if you say, hey, Starbucks is $1,000 a day, but porn is $20,000 a day. Now you're going to have a lot of girls going to porn. So, so if you look at the typical age and experience and education of a girl coming to the porn business, she's usually uneducated. I mean, she has a high school education of most usually coming in around 18 or 19 years old, as everybody else at that age does. They don't have any marketable skills, but they know that their value is basically in their youth and their body appeal, right? Where else can you make $1,000 a day? I mean, if you're 18 with a high school education, you go anywhere else, you're making minimum wage. I mean, you're making $8, $9, $10 an hour, unless you live in Seattle, where they checked up the minimum wage recently. There's something like 12 or 13, I think. I don't know, some high number there. But um, the choice is obvious if you really need money. You know, And a lot of these girls, they're single mothers or you know, they got kicked out of their houses or, or whatever. But again, they're not forced to it. Nobody's putting a gun to their head. I mean, if I'm a girl and I've gotten pregnant because I wasn't smart enough to use contraception... I have the option to get an abortion. I have the option to give it up for adoption. I have the option to work at Starbucks and work seven days a week and spend no time with my kid. Or I have the option to do one porn shoot a week and make 52 grand a year and spend six days with my kid and go to the beach, right? I don't know if you saw it, but there was an interesting article, uh, kind of mini report in The Economist last week on the sex industry, escort. 
one of the things they did was they interviewed a girl who is doing it for monetary. It's, it's similar to what you're saying, right? It's just they needed the money. Now you have a lot of these forums online, which maybe you have for the porn industry, where the girls can go and ask questions, right? They have a community of escorts talking to each other, giving themselves tips and so, and so on. So some girls, when they're in need, maybe they're studying or whatever it is, they'll go in there and they'll ask, oh, you know, I really need the money right now. I got debt or whatever. How safe is it? And, you know, go through all the questions. Um, and basically, there's a fair number of women now going online and there's different modalities to sell sex. So I guess the question is, another option would be to become an escort, um, which, of course, you have to be even more sexually open. So are the girls coming into the porn industry relatively sexually open already? Like, you know, you describe yourself, you were a guy when you got in and you were already kind of swinging and stuff. So you had a polyamorous lifestyle. So it's not that far removed from your original lifestyle in that respect. Are the girls similar in that light? Uh, well, I would say the girls that I like working with are <laughs> in the sense that I mean, uh -huh. all girls are basically coming to it for the money. Because if you're a girl and you just enjoy sex for its own sake, you can get that easily by going to your local bar or just having a network of friends. There's always a willing, available guy. Uh, for men, we're the ones that have to do the work to get sex. So that's why the porn industry is appealing because you can just go in and get paid to have access to what you would otherwise pay for or whether through direct prostitution or through what I call social prostitution, which is buying dinner and flowers and roses and other things to signal resources uh, towards women. But what I find is uh, there's a lot of girls who are doing it just only for the money. They don't even like sex. They're just there because that's how they're going to get the money. And, you, and it comes through in the shoot. I mean, you can tell that they're not excited to be there, that they're not animated and full of life, you know. And then you have the girls that are swingers and their husbands come to the shoots and they watch. And everybody's happy. Like, you know, the girl says to the husband, hey, can you believe I'm working with so-and-so? Like, this is director so-and-so. And they're all happy and everybody's happy to be there. But they were already in um, the business to begin with. In, in an analogy I used in the book, not so much for, um, for the porn, but just for women who are open to, to partner variety, which is kind of opposed to the evolved sexual psychology of women, is kind of like a horse, right? A lot of people who love horses that live on farms and have horses will say that the horse loves to be ridden. I don't know what, you know, what the horse loves when I ride him. And we know naturally that's not true because any horse that you take in the wild and try to ride it naturally, right, is going to buck off the cowboy. You know, the, the, the cowboy has to basically what they call break the horse, right, just through um, riding it all the time and, and, and basically breaking it or taming it. Then it all of a sudden allows people to ride it. And then the human basically rationalizes that that the horse actually really likes to be ridden, where in reality, it would probably rather just be free in the wild, roaming around, you know, not subject to whatever the the, uh, the master wants. And and what I say is, is when, when I look at women who are sexually promiscuous, enjoying partner variety or sex for its own sake, most of those women from the research I've done have come from, have either a, a sexual, you know, abuse, they were either raped or, or molested by a parent or something, or they had what I call, and that could happen just once, or they can have sustained emotional abuse, usually in a physical domain. So that it's not like that someone saying you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, but somebody saying you're fat, you're ugly, look at that nose, who would want to date you? And there's two different things going on. So with the girl that, say, had sexual trauma, the physical sexual trauma, like the rape or the sexual coercion in some capacity, usually she's acting out or having sex with all these different guys as a, as a means of catharsis to try to recreate the experience in her head to kind of master it because she'll never really understand it. And that cycle just kind of repetitively continues. The other argument is that on the emotional side, that she's not doing it for catharsis, but she's doing it for self-validation and say, you know, I've been told my whole life that I'm ugly or that I'm fat or that my nose is, you know, whatever it is. 
but this guy is having sex with me. So therefore I am valuable. Then the guy moves on to the next girl. So she, you know, she feels bad. So she goes out and she, she revalidates herself by having sex with another guy. So it's really for uh, lack of self-esteem or emotional reasons that you see a lot of girls that are, that are actively seeking out partner variety for its own sake. I mean, I would love to say that there are women who are promiscuous and there are women who aren't. There are men who are promiscuous and there, there are men who are. I mean, that was my sort of naive mindset back when I was 20 years old. And I broke up with my first girlfriend because I said, well, she's just not as sexual as me. I need to find someone like me that wants to go out and be a swinger and do all this kind of stuff. But the reality is, is, you know, when you talk to these people who are swingers, it's not like the, I mean, very rarely did the wife get the guy in to the lifestyle. It was always, almost always the guy, 99 out of 100 times, that not only asked the wife, but discussed it over years in their marriage. They say, oh, I'll ask them, you know, how'd you get in? And they go, well, you know, at first I, I told her, we talked about our fantasies. And I said, I thought it'd be really cool this year with another guy. And then like, we'd be out and I'd be, what about, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we went back and we talked about it and then we thought about it and then we went out and then she changed her mind. But it was like, it was this long process of quote unquote, breaking her into the lifestyle in the same way that you would break the horse into submission to allow it to be ridden. And I think that says a lot, you know, about, about psychology and about female sexuality and male sexuality. And I think the happiest females generally are women who believe they're in monogamous relationships. And I think the happiest males generally are males who are in open relationships or in the lifestyle. And I think, and I talk about this in the book, that I think the optimal relationship is what actually is happening in most relationships, whether people acknowledge it, which is that the woman believes she's in a monogamous relationship where the guy is actually cheating when he travels or with a coworker or whatever, but just isn't stupid enough to tell his wife about it. And then everybody's maximized and thinks she's in, uh, in a committed relationship, sexually committed relationship. The guy isn't, but he really is emotionally committed and everybody's happy. They have their kids, you know, and... Everybody lives happily after, assuming that nobody finds out. Basically, the like to sum up what you're saying, and like and you also relate this in the book, is you're saying all porn actresses are damaged goods in some way. And I take by that that I guess you haven't had relationships with these types of women, or you haven't been looking for relationships with these. Well, I, I mean, I, I've talked to them. I mean, I've hung. You know, you, you make your friends like any other job, and you hang out with them, and it, and it just becomes an obvious apparent trend. I mean, I remember I had, I had lunch with an agent here in Florida, like about two months ago. I keep in touch with people, you know, and I asked them, I said, I said, Brian, how is the, you know, I haven't been in the business for a couple of years now because it's like, you know, there's no more money in it. So I'm onto other things, but I asked them, you know, I'm like, how is the, you know, now that porn is more accepted and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, have you noticed like a difference in the profile of the girl that comes in? I mean, you know, back when I was in the business, they were, you know, 18 to 25 and they were all from broken homes or sexually abused. And he's like, dude, he's like, it's, it's all the same. You know, they're all damaged in some way. We know that. I and mean, people in the business know that. They don't like to talk about that. But again, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you're a, a prison, right, and you talk to the prison guards, most of those guys in prison had a pretty messed up lifestyle. I mean, that's why they ended up to a life of crime. But don't blame the prison just because the prisoners end up there. Blame the process that made people commit crimes so that they ended up in prison porn industry doesn't create broken people. Broken people come to the porn industry. So don't hate the porn industry for giving them an option. Hate the society, hate the hate the fact that we don't openly discuss rape. You know, hate the fact that we don't more aggressively prosecute sexual offenders. There was a recent study in the news that a lot of these universities are under fire for they have unprocessed rape kits from university students that were raped. I mean like that's inexcusable, and that's your cohort of people that are coming into the porn business. 
to, to extend this a little bit, if I think back through all my girlfriends and experiences, the most extreme sexual experiences I had were with one girlfriend who was bipolar and had a terrible childhood, really more like the emotional abuse you're talking about um, throughout her childhood. And I'm wondering if you've seen that as a general rule in relationships in terms of in, in terms of the extremes women are interested in and explore. She was actively interested in exploring the extremes further than I was, <laughs> um, so which is unusual for a girl. So I'm just wondering if you've seen that kind of thing in your life. No, not really. I mean, what I've noticed is that once a girl falls in love with a guy, she'll basically do anything the guy wants her to do. So if she genuinely loves the guy and the guy's fetish is to, I mean, take something extreme. I mean, just extreme, like crazy. Like, I want to watch you have sex with a German shepherd or something you know, crazy. Like, if the girl loves the guy and she knows that that's really what he wants, she'll do it. it, it it's amazing what women will do for a man that she loves. Now, if there's a girl who just shows up and they're on their second date and some guy has some strange sexual request, it's extremely unlikely she's going to do that because she doesn't care about the guy. She's just trying to get to know him. But once a woman falls in love with a guy, she will basically do whatever he wants to make him mad, to please him. I mean, women are, are, are pleasers just naturally. I mean, they want, they want to, to do well for those that they love. And I think that's what I've seen. Like when I see these girls that like, if you go to like a fetish convention and they're walking around on a dog leash (laughs) with their husband and it says like slut painted on their butt. I don't think when they break up, if they, if if the husband died in a car accident, because they would never, I mean, they they love the guy, they sort of not break up with him. And they met the next boyfriend. I don't think she would say, can you please put me on a leash and write slut on my butt? If that guy's, if the new guy's fantasy is to watch her, just to have sex with other girls and not even guys, then I think that's what you'll do for him. Um, now, again, this is just anecdotal experience. What I see, I don't have any research to support those statements, um, but that's just what I've noticed in terms of a pattern. Um, now, to your earlier point about somebody who's maybe had a crazy traumatic upbringing and they're in the crazy stuff, that could very well be. But that's like anything else. I mean, you look at these people that shoot up movie theaters and try to cause mass destruction, most of them have mental illness. I mean, they're not, you know, rational, sane people. The guy that was in the Aurora, Colorado movie theater massacre thing, I mean, his psychology professor, I think, even wrote a letter that they were concerned about his mental state. I mean, normal people don't do that. So whether you're acting extraordinarily in a sexual capacity or in a in any other social context, I think a lot of that comes back to the mental illness that you describe. When you talk about kinks and fetishes and weird stuff, I think in the sexual context exclusively, I think that's women just responding to men that they love and trying to make them to please the man that they that they love and adore. Interesting, interesting. So another thing, like I just wanted to see what your ideas would be on. There's been a community I, I've become a little bit involved in in LA. I mean, it's a global community called um, One Taste, Orgasmic Meditation. I don't know if you've heard of it. But basically, the structure is, once you get into it, that guys will go around and uh, stroke uh, a girl's clitoris for 15 minutes, um, which is the structure of the orgasmic meditation. So you'll go to a girl's house, you'll give her her orgasmic meditation, and you'll leave. And there's a, there's a big community of guys and women involved in this. So I'm just wondering what your idea of how that's working is. Well, okay. So <laughs> first of all, I think there's this false assumption that men have that the, that the way to, to please women is through 
sexuality is. I, I stimulated her clit or I had sex with her with my enormous 12-inch cock. You know, like, I think that's just male ego. I mean, the reality is that women are, are more uh, turned on, so to speak, by um, expressions of love and, and romance and things like that. And it's funny because I, I don't know if you've ever read the book uh, A Billion Wicked Thoughts by uh, Augie August and, and Sai Gadam. And actually, I was reading this again the other day, and I underlined something which is perfect to what you just said. And I'm trying to see if I can find it here. Here it is, right here. here this is a quote from the book A Billion Wicked Thoughts, which is an academic book about uh, the sexual behaviors of men and women. And it says, men are quite prone to believing that they are inducing feelings of erotic ecstasy in their partner through their own sexual prowess. Women, on the other hand, are more easily manipulated by expressions of love. And that's very true. I mean, you know, this people go, oh, you know, how can I make sex better for my wife or my girlfriend? Like, what should I do? Should I, like, get, take up Viagra? <laughs> it's always this physical thing. Should I stimulate her? Should I go down on her more? And I'm like, dude, the best thing you can do is just cuddle with her, have a, an emotional conversation, tell her how much you love her, how beautiful she is, and talk about your life together. And then start kissing her and just have whatever sex you enjoy, but don't, you know, neglect her. And that will be so much better than some random stranger who's the Don Juan just coming in and sticking his random fingers in her vagina and doing some technique that the guy thinks will work because he's being myopic. He's thinking of it from his own perspective. As men, we don't care. Like some random stranger that's hot could come up to me and stroke it just the right way, and that's going to get me off maybe better than anybody else I've ever been with if they know the technique. But men respond. For us, sex is like an oil change or like taking a dump. It's a physical reaction you know, to a stimulus. For, for the purpose of orgasm, sex for men is an end in itself. Sex is the end point, where for women, sex is just part of the journey toward emotional commitment and happily ever after. And I've seen this over and over and over again. Now, you might have, you know, the thing that I think is funny when you talk sort of in these generalities is you can statistically say that men are taller than women. Okay, now, anecdotally, you could be the the coach of a women's basketball team and go, that's bullshit because, you know, look at so, so everyone on my team, they're all taller than men. But when, you, when you're doing that, you're looking at what's called an adversely selected population. You're not randomly picking women at random and randomly picking men. And you can do what's called a difference of means test in statistics that'll tell you with a certain degree of significance whether or not one thing is true versus the other. So, so you can't say that, like, you know, for example, people always say that I say all men cheat. And I don't say that all men cheat. I say that men cheat, <laughs> which is true because when you look at, at you know, the, the availability of uh, when people have equal opportunity because men don't have equal opportunity to cheat like women do. But when you control for opportunity, men overwhelmingly cheat more than women. And you might say, oh, well, I know Joe and Joe didn't cheat. Well, I can posit that Joe probably is short, doesn't have social status, doesn't have personality or humor skills. These other things, you know, Joe, Joe might just be the, the, the security guard, you know, at the local condo development, you know, and it's not that he hasn't chosen to cheat, <laughs> you know, he just, he doesn't have the opportunity. So people might be listening to this and going, oh, that's not true. Like I had this guy come over the other day and he told me how you stimulated me, blah, 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 blah. But in a sense, you're kind of adversely selecting for a population of people who listen to podcasts about sexuality, right? Versus pulling people at random from the population and looking for statistical differences and means between the two groups. So for people who are listening to this that are particularly women that might be saying, oh, that's BS, you know, I don't believe that, keep in mind that you are one of the, say, say few, just people more generally that listen to podcasts in general and then about podcasts about sexuality 
that automatically puts you in a more progressive or you know people listening to the show are probably more more receptive to polyamory or more receptive to the swinger lifestyle more receptive to these sort of more some modern, some of them are some you know. some some of them aren't um, no, no, I, know, but I, I think, think i think people want different things out of it so you true. know i get a lot of email about girlfriends or i get women uh, you know i get women asking about guys and they're more interested in relationships um as well right oh of course generally yeah, no, um, I, so just... i think we've covered polyamory from quite a few perspectives but i think the actual number of people interested in that lifestyle as to like i'm sure there are there was quite a few guys who were interested in meeting lots of women kind of just picking up and um, that kind of single lifestyle but in terms of real polyamory i think it, it's a relative minority on the podcast right, right. no so but far, what i'm saying from what i can but tell from a statistical point what i'm saying is if you take females who listen to podcasts about sexuality versus females who listen to podcasts about the stock market right i would say that if you took those females and you and again this would be the hypothesis i'm actually doing the study and you you pull them about what's called their their uh, soi their sexual sociosexuality inventory or their restrictiveness versus sexuality that that predispose them to more partners or more openness to experience and things like that you're going to find that the people who li- that the women who listen to the sexuality podcast more generally are going to be more or score higher on an soi score than people who, because you're adversely talking for those who are asking questions about sexuality and those who listen to sexuality shows versus people who listen to stock market. No, abs- ab- absolutely. And one of the things I say, actually, it's good to meet women. If you want to know you've got a pretty developed sexuality and you're interested in that and you're looking for, you know, a partner who's going to be more suitable for you. It's good for you to go to like, you know, the conferences around the subject. I've been to seminars and workshops and it's a set bias selection of women there who are very different from the girls you're going to meet in random coffee shops and so on. Absolutely. And I tell people, guys specifically, I mean, if you want a girl who understands how you think, go to an evolutionary psychology conference, go to HBES, <laughs> you know, go hang out there. I mean, the, women are still women. They're still going to have their, their psychology the way that they are, but at least they're going to understand the way that you think. Yeah. What I love about this is like, it's, if you're interested in something, just get engaged with it, get more engaged with it. And you're going to meet more people, including women who are more relevant to you. So I, I really love that rule. It's just like, get more social, get more engaged with your interests and it will help you. Absolutely. Um, one kind of thing I remember now, I had, I'd kind of forgotten about this. A few years ago, the pickup artist community, I'm sure you've looked at those guys and, and seen what they're up to. Um, sure. They started watching this, I can't remember the name of it, but there was a guy filming porn from, I can't remember what you call it, is when you're coming from the perspective of the guy and you can't see the guy. Oh, POV, um, yeah, point of view. POV. Right, point, point of view. And there was this whole kind of story behind it, which was that it was real, that basically he was putting an ad in the papers for models or, you know, some kind of like modeling or something. Um, and the girls were coming and he would interview them kind of like, and as soon as they would enter the room, he would start filming them. And then he would encourage, he would try and lead them, kind of seduce them to, to performing sex and stuff on, on, on the videotape. And so all the pickup artists guys were convinced this was the real thing. I kind of, I'm pretty dubious that I don't know if that was legal or, um, and I can imagine that would be the kind of like reality kind of porn um, story that would be put together do you know what i'm referring to have you seen that or have you got well i know the content you're referring to i haven't seen you know i'm familiar with the pua pickup artist communities and things like that but uh, i mean i can tell you that basically what happens is i mean pov shoots exist i mean so you're talking about legal versus illegal content so for example prostitution is illegal paying someone for sex or giving them the idea that you're going to pay them for sex uh versus actually having people sign release forms and give ids and all this kind of stuff so you can legally start an adult film business and you can contact the agents and have them send girls and you can pay for the girls and have everyone do their release forms and IDs and 
you know, get your tax ID and incorporate and all this kind of stuff and, and legitimately do that. Right. Now, if people are actually just posting ads and they're having girls come over and telling them that and they leave and there's no release forms, no IDs, no nothing, that girl could go to the police and that guy could be arrested and put in jail because he's doing something illegal. He's basically telling women he's, he's going to give them money for this, for this porn shoot. They're going to do it. And there was no release forms, no IDs, no age checks, nothing. That would be pretty stupid. I mean, from a, from a legal standpoint, assuming the girl is sophisticated enough to realize that she was duped and to go to the, uh, to the police, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of POV porn out there that's legitimate porn. You know, it's the girl came from an agent, etc. If you are a girl, say you're just a girl, you're trying to find work in the business, and you go to the internet and you type in, "I want to be a porn star," or whatever. And let's just say there's the fake guy who's got his fake ad, and then there's the real agent. Usually, what happens is the girl doesn't just call one person; she calls like seven different people, and then the legitimate agents that know the process go, "Listen, this guy's bullshitting you." It's like. Go here, go to this blog, read this, look at our website, look at all the girls we have, you know, Google them, you'll see they work for the big companies, and they can cert- they can get around it that way. Or if they didn't, let's say they go shoot for the crazy guy, right, or the fake guy, and then obviously that guy doesn't have any – she's going to realize she doesn't get paid, so she's not going to get recurring work from that guy. So then she goes back to the internet, eventually finds a real producer, tells that producer about the story, and then he re- – you know, then that other producer might report. Who that person is. I mean, right. I would. I mean, it's in his interest, kind of. To I would absolutely. If, if a girl right. came to me on a shoot and said, "I responded to this ad. This I showed up at the guy's house. You know, I gave him a blowjob. He said was, nothing happened. He kicked me out. I'd be like, who was this guy? What was his phone number? And then I would probably report it. You know, I'm like, here's this. You know, it, so that happens a lot. No, I, I've never encountered that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure somebody could do it, but I'm just saying that if 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 they were, there's kind of a market forces behind that to kind of squash that out from at least from sticking around you know what i mean and then the person who's doing it is putting themselves at great legal risk it's easier to just get involved with the swinger community or to just go to craigslist and go find an escort <laughs> than it is to put yourself at that kind of legal exposure all right let's move on to uh sexually transmitted infections because uh that's i know it's a topic you've talked a bit about and uh what's the real deal what are the risks in the industry well, back in like I think it was the nineties, there was a guy they weren't really doing any testing at all. And a guy named Mark Wallace turned up HIV positive and he kinda hit his status and infected a bunch of other people. And that's when Free Speech Coalition came, you know, the porn lobbying group came together and formed AIM Healthcare Foundation, where Cheryl Mitchell, who was an ex adult film performer, kind of oversaw that, got her medical training and got her PhD in like human sexuality and started this testing lab. And when I got in the business, all they tested for was HIV. And I was getting gonorrhea, chlamydia, like every other month because I was shooting a lot. And I'm like, what, what the hell? This is, why aren't we testing for this? And sharing what everybody was opposed to it. Oh, you're going to raise the cost. No one's going to do it. It's going to drive the business underground, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually, like years later, they finally decide, like after the, um, the Darren James thing in Brazil uh, with the HIV thing, they didn't even have to do with chlamydia or gonorrhea, but they finally decided to also test for chlamydia and gonorrhea. And then, so it was HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia. And the HIV was done by what's called a PCR DNA test, which is the most sensitive uh, test available. It's the one that they use on the blood donor population before they ship it off to hospitals. Oh, how does that work? So there's basically a 14-day window, meaning like if you had sex with a girl a month ago and you went to the free AIDS clinic to get tested, and let's say this girl gave you HIV, right? When you take that, that it's called the ELISA antibody test. That's going to turn up negative even though you're positive because the, the window for development is six months, three to six months, but say six months to be safe for the ELISA test. So you can get tested today, and if you're negative, that's only negative for the partners you had six months or before. Right. That's relying on the mechanism that your body has to create the antibodies. And that the can take a fair right. amount of time. You know, Fair amount yeah. of time, right? And the thing is, when you get HIV, you're most infectious the minute you get it. So if you got HIV today, 
you are most infectious tomorrow or actually, you know, within hours after you do it because your body hasn't built up the antibodies to help at least attempt to suppress it. So a lot of people don't know that. And the thing is, is the PCR DNA test is only a 14 day window. So if you, if you had sex with a girl three weeks ago and she had HIV and transferred it to you conceptually, the ELISA antibody test would be negative for the next five and a half months, right? While you're off infecting people, but the PCR DNA test is a 14 day window. So when I was in the business, they were doing it every 30 days. And then people made the argument, well, why every 30 days? It's a 14-day window. Why don't you just do it every 14 days to help reduce risk exposure? And that's what they do now. They test every 14 days, and now they're, you know, they test for hepatitis. They test for syphilis. So they've expanded the testing. And herpes? Herpes, they don't. They just assume that everybody in the business has it because herpes is a non-curable disease. It's a virus. It's like, it's like HIV. You can't cure it as of now, right? But it, herpes is non-lethal. Uh-huh. So if you have syphilis, gonorrhea, Chlamydia. These are all bacterial infections. So you can take an antibiotic, right. um, and it'll get rid of it completely. Meaning, like you never had it to begin with. It's like literally eliminating it. But if you have, and there's vaccinations for hepatitis A and B, even though those are viral. So if, when you come to the business, they recommend you get vaccinated for hepatitis A and B. Hep C is not considered sexually transmitted. You can get it by like crazy rough acts and things like that, but it's primarily done through needle sharing and, and blood and things like that. So it's not even really considered sexually transmitted, although for perm purposes, it, it might be. But for me, I never concerned myself with that because I never did the aggressive scenes. I was just doing vanilla stuff. Now, HPV and herpes are, are with you for life, and they're prevalent in the general community. If you're a man, and forget porn, just in general, one out of five guys has genital uh, herpes. One out of four girls has genital herpes. And of those, 80% don't even know they've had it because they never had an outbreak. So they carry the virus. They've just never had anything, maybe a stressful life event or whatever that might that might trigger that outbreak. And the only way to know if you have herpes is not to wait till you have an outbreak, but to get what's called the herpes select test. There's only two herpes tests that are approved by the FDA. The most common one is called the herpes select test. It's a test for type 1 and type 2. It's a blood test, and that'll tell you. Is that an antibody test again? That I don't know, but it's one of two that's approved by, by the FDA, and it's, it's the standard for knowing whether or not you have it. And a lot of people, you know, my friend Mike, it's funny, like a couple of years ago, Mike was like, aren't you concerned about you know STDs being in the business? I'm like, Mike, you probably have herpes. He's like, I don't have herpes. I'm like, Mike, how much you want to bet? He knows how cheap I am. I said, Mike, listen, I'll pay for the test, for your test, okay? And or I'm, sorry, I'm like, you pay for the test. He pays for it. And if he comes back negative, I'll pay him for the test and then another $100. And if he comes back positive, he can just, just know. <laughs> That's how <laughs> okay. confident I was. So I knew that Mike had hooked up with a lot of girls. He's like, no, he's like, all right, fine. So he goes online and he signs up and he pays, he pays the money online. It was like a lab core quest diagnostics or somewhere. And, uh, he goes, so then I, I call him like two days. Later. I'm like, dude, did you go yet? He's like, no, no, I haven't gone. And he never went, he paid for the test and he never went. And I said, Mike, how come you won't go? And he said, because if I go and I find out that I have it, then I feel that I have a social obligation to tell girls that I meet that I have it ethically. And he said, like, if I don't get tested and I keep my head in the sand, then I'm not doing anything bad. And I'm like, I, to me, that was completely ridiculous. I'm like, well, don't you want to know just for your own sake, particularly just not that you just spent 80 bucks or whatever it was for the test. I mean, the, this idea that ignorance is bliss. I mean, that's like saying I'm not going to get tested. For I think that it does bring because I recently went on a date with a girl and she told me the last guy she has a boyfriend. And this is like in our first we talked on the phone and, and within the first few minutes of actually meeting each other, she told me this came up in conversation, like just naturally. Um, but she told me like he'd, he'd had herpes and so they've been very careful. But obviously that kind of affected the way <laughs> I was looking 
at the whole date afterwards. I, I have to admit, you know, I was just like, ah, I, I don't think I'm going to go through, you know, this. And so I just had a, you know, had, had a nice day and then I left. Right. Well, I mean, the thing is, is, you know, I, I was talking to this girl the other day uh, and she told me the same thing. She's like, oh, by the way, I have HSV. And I said, and I said to her, I said, why would you tell me that? <laughs> you know, I'm like 80 percent of people that have it don't even know they have it. So why should you feel that just because you were proactive and got tested it, that you have an obligation to tell other people you could have been just as irresponsible and not got tested and not said anything and nothing would have changed. You're, you know, so right. So where where would the obligation come if you wear a condom, like, or you know? Well, if, if, to me, if I mean, you... I'm very sort of progressive in this sense. To me, having herpes is like having a green toe. Like every once in a while, your toe turns green. It's like who cares? There's for men, there's absolutely no health consequences. There's actually some studies that show that having herpes might actually reduce your prevalence of skin cancer. Interestingly enough, for women, the only risk is if you're having a baby, if you're having an outbreak at the time that you're delivering a baby, that you risk transferring the virus to the baby, and they what they'll do is they'll develop they'll they'll deliver the baby versus via cesarean section. But there's no health consequence. So to me, everybody could have herpes. I wouldn't care. I'm like, it doesn't affect me, right? Now you look at HPV. HPV does nothing to men. Again, men can just be carriers. I can get it from a girl, give it to another girl. And HPV is the virus that can lead to cervical cancer. Now they have Gardasil, which they're which the CDC recommends giving to middle school girls before they're sexually active. I got the Gardasil vaccine off off label uh, through NIH as part of a clinical trial that I proactively solicited uh, to get it as soon as possible, you know, to reduce my risk of being a a carrier. But again, so for men, herpes and HPV is irrelevant. It doesn't affect your health in one way or another. For women, only baby delivery for, for so, an outbreak. But you can get outbreaks. Like, um, I've got a friend who's got genital warts. Um, he gets them coming up and he has to go and get them frozen and, and every now and again. It, it's pretty annoying from what I understand. For those who don't know, genital warts is the same thing as HPV, the human papillomavirus. That's how it can display or present itself in men, though it doesn't have to. But yeah, you get it frozen off. But again, it's it's nothing that's life-threatening. It's, it's kind of like saying, telling somebody, oh, I have oral herpes. I mean, like 80 to 90% of the general population has oral herpes. And most people never have the cholesterol outbreak, but they carry, they harbor the virus. So do you say, oh, by the way... I uh, have oral herpes, just want to let you know before you kiss me. I mean, there's no reason to say that because the bulk of the population has it, and most people don't, uh, well, a lot of people don't even know that they have it. I think that the burden of ethics really falls upon whether or not you're going to cause harm to someone. So if you have HIV and you don't tell somebody, I think that's an issue. If you have hepatitis, you could say, listen, I have hepatitis, you might want to get vaccinated. It's kind of like prosecuting somebody for murder versus speeding. I mean, if somebody speeds, yeah, okay, technically they're breaking the law, but who cares, right? It's not like they're, they're going 90 in a 20, they're going 30 in a 20, right? Versus somebody who murdered somebody or raped somebody or something more aggressive. So, I mean, yeah, you could say, oh, you know, I have herpes, I have HPV or whatever. Or even to say I have chlamydia. I mean, I remember when I, I used to get the porn shoot sometimes and the girl would tell me I have chlamydia. Just FYI. I'm like, I don't care. Let's do the shoot anyways. We're all here. If I happen to get it from you. I'll take an antibiotic and it'll go away. Now, if the girl said, oh, by the way, I just tested positive for HIV, I'd be like, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know what I mean? And what I would say to you, based on your last comment, is if you are, and I'm assuming, I mean, I don't know you, but for assuming you're part of this pickup artist community um, and you've had a lot of partners, statistically, you're going to have it. Statistically. And the only way you're going to know for sure is to go get the herpes select test, even if you've never had an outbreak. Right. I had a herpes test a couple of years ago after I've had over 100 partners or whatever. I lost count. And it was negative. And that was the, but that was an antibody test, I know for sure, because I got it done in Bangkok and I discussed at length with the doctor the, the details of it. 
But do you know the type? Of, but you don't know if it was the the herpes. I don't know. I mean, it sounds like a brand name test. You're you're, you're saying it a is. select test. I don't yeah. I don't know that format of test. It sounds like it's a brand name, so I'd have to look at it. I'll we'll, we'll shove all this in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, but you should do that. But um, seriously, for you, just for your own personal, you should get the herpes select. It's like eighty dollars, right? And you can go to if you go to anylabtestnow.com. They're they're all over the country. Okay. Get the herpes select test, and then you'll know. But I'm a data guy, so statistically, if you've had a lot of partners, even though you may have never had an outbreak, it'll let you know one way or the other whether or not you have it. Right. The other thing is, for basically the last 10 years, I've worn a condom. And I think with two girlfriends who had been tested for things, I, I didn't use a condom, and that was it. Okay, so the thing with condoms is that condoms are barrier protection for diseases that are transmitted via fluids, right? So, for example, HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, things like that. Now, herpes and HPV are viruses that are basically transmitted through viral shedding on the skin. So using a condom does not eliminate your risk of HIV, uh, gonorrhea, chlamydia, assuming it's not broken, that you that you use it correctly and it doesn't break. Now, you could use a condom correctly and it might not break, and you can still get herpes and you can still get HPV because it's transmitted by skin-to-skin contact. So let's say a girl has herpes, and let's say she's having an outbreak to make it more susceptible to transmission, and let's say she's, she's riding on top of you. Okay, the condom only rolls down to the base of your penis. So if she's on top of you and she keeps bouncing, 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 that can still transmit the virus to the skin area and you can have subsequent outbreaks there. Sure. And would just for clarity, this is a yucky subject, guys. Sorry, but I think it's good for, good for you. <laughs> um, basically, wouldn't she be able to have sex if she's having an outbreak without having pain or some sign herself? It depends where the outbreak is. Not you don't necessarily going to have the outbreak within the vagina. You could have it in the pubic area. I mean, if you're a guy and you have herpes, you're not necessarily going to have an outbreak on the shaft of the penis. You can have it in the pubic area. Basically, type two herpes is a general term for saying it recurs below the waist. So if it recurs on your knee or on your ankle, it's type two. If it recurs on your upper back, it's type one. Not necessarily just on your mouth. So. The most prevalent places for it to occur for type 1 are at your mouth or for type 2 are in the, on the genitals or in the genital area. That doesn't mean that they're absolutely going to occur there, although most of the time it does. But a lot of people don't realize that it, although a condom does reduce your risk because it's covering the shaft um, or inside if the girl is having an outbreak inside. But yeah, if, you, if you're having an outbreak, particularly if you're a woman, it's going to be painful. But you don't have to have an outbreak to transmit. It just makes you more likely to transmit. But you're still engaging in what's called viral shedding which happens whether or not you're having an outbreak. So if you really want to reduce your risk of um, getting herpes, you want to take uh, an antiretroviral drug sort of like um, uh, Valtrex, for example. If you, get a, if you get a prescription for Valtrex, even without having herpes, you just take it and it dramatically reduces, I don't want to say eliminates, but if, if you're a germaphobe health nut and you're like, I want to make sure I'm doing everything in my power, the best thing you can do is just to not have sex at all. And if you say, okay, well, I'm going to have sex and I, I want to take every precaution available, then you wear a condom and you take Valtrex or Alcyclovir, one of these enteroviral drugs, and that's it. And you do a visual inspection you know, to make sure there isn't. Okay, so you're saying you take that when you're going to have sex. Like, I don't know, you take it the same day. Or... No, you just take it. You never know when you're going to have sex, right? I could have sex later today. I don't know. You just take it every day. It's called suppressive therapy. Uh -huh. You just take, uh, I want to say a thousand milligrams of Valtrex. Um, you just take it every day. I mean, it's not going to hurt your system, but it could be expensive to do that. But what I would tell people is who cares? I mean, so do you know people who do that? Uh, I do, yeah. I mean, people who are in the business that have it and they want to reduce – because if you have an outbreak, then you can't shoot. You're like, oh, this girl has an outbreak. I'm like, well, I can't shoot her with an outbreak. And, and the outbreak could last one to two weeks, which means that they're going to miss out on a lot of income. So a lot of performers in the business will take the Valtrax 
to reduce the likelihood of having an outbreak, which prevents them from working. But for the general population, I would say, who cares? Like, if you're going to get herpes when you get it, you're initially going to have a lot of outbreaks. And eventually, over, over many years, you're going to have fewer and fewer and fewer. So when you first get it, you'll have an outbreak like once every few months, then it'll be twice a year, then it'll be once a year, then it'll be once every three years, and once every five years. And that's what happens, and that's how the virus develops. But generally speaking, there's no health risks. What I would argue as a public health standpoint is, if you're a girl or a guy, get vaccinated with the Gardasil vaccine when you're in middle school, right? Or as soon as you can, you know, get your hepatitis A and B vaccine, you know, use condoms correctly and consistently. And, and you've done 90, 95% of the work. Right. So you have to keep it practical. Um, I'm not sure. I think there's many things we don't understand about viruses. As time goes on, they're, they're understanding that viruses occupy different organs and they can help to cause cancer and things like this. So I think saying that it definitely doesn't cause anything like the herpes virus just being inside you or the, or the HPV in guys. I'm, I'm not sure we can say that as yet. I'd be a bit more uh, skeptical as to what we may discover in the future. But as you say, obviously, it's not leading to anything acute that people have seen over quite a long period now. So if it is causing some kind of damage or or it's increasing your risk of certain certain cancers, as they found out with HPV with women and hepatitis with, with lung cancer, then uh, it's like that. But I think like kind of the medical medical establishment is still understanding viruses and you know their influence and so on. Oh, sure, but that argument can be extended to a lot of different things. Like for example, science is the best thing that we have. It's a self-corrective process, and as we learn more information, let's say we find out that someone, you know, we put that out and we develop interventions to prevent that from happening. But what you say is true of anything in science. I mean, we don't know that milk, drinking milk doesn't cause something or eating carrots. As far as we know, carrots and bananas are healthy, but there could be a time that we find out that bananas cause glaucoma. I mean, we, we don't know. Like we can only go by what our best information is. And that's really what we're conveying right now. So I wouldn't, I mean, sure, but, you know, take your, your multivitamin every day. That's what we think now, but it could cause brain cancer 20 years from now. We don't know that, but we can only do what the best available option is through science, and that's what we know now. And uh, there's no other better available option to rule your life based on other than science at this point. Okay, great. So to round off the, the, this topic, what do you think porn stars should be doing today? And, and are they doing it? Is, it? is it kind of regulated that way, or do you think it still has a, a ways to go? Other things that you would add? Oh, I think it has a ways to go. I mean, I'm a proponent of mandatory condom use in, in the adult film business. Most of the industry is opposed to that. Even the most performers you talk to, the ones who come in right away are like, they're shocked that people don't use condoms in films. And then once it becomes normalized to them, it's like a normal behavior, then they say, oh, it doesn't really matter. But it's a very low cost. I mean, if you buy condoms in bulk, you're talking like five, 10 cents use. It doesn't add to the cost of production. The biggest burden the producers is it's hard enough to get guys to perform as it is. So just to get, them, to get them to get erections with all the people standing around and the complications of the shoot, adding a condom only makes it more difficult. But I, I think from a public health standpoint that they should absolutely mandate condom use in the production uh, and even the distribution and retail sales. Because if it goes under market or underground and people are shooting without people knowing about it, you can hold the distributors accountable and say, listen, you're distributing content that doesn't have um, – I mean, it's the same way if you look at like child pornography. It's illegal, right? But what if they allowed distributors to distribute child pornography? They'd be like – it would still be available. So you go after the distributors, not just the producers and the retailers. If a retailer was selling it, that you crack down. And that's the only way to really get people to respect sort of the, the human rights around um, sex work, so to speak. Great. Thanks for your views on this because I know this is something you got quite involved with. 
So what about mental impacts of porn? Do you think it has there's negative mental impacts? We've had a few academics talking about things about dopamine and other mental effects. Um, like they have guys that have kind of depression, lack of motivation, they have low testosterone. They seem to have impacts on their dopamine levels as well. What's your views of... As a consumer yeah. or a performer? Yeah, as a consumer. Porn is basically a product that helps men achieve orgasm. And it, porn for men is like romance novels for women. Right, It sets a unrealistic expectation of how women should look and perform sexually. And romance novels set an equally unrealistic expectation about how men, about the level of social status and personality and confidence and you know resources that, that their ideal man should have. So if you're an avid reader of romance novels and all of a sudden the local mechanic flirts with you, you're like – Oh my God, why would they never date this guy? He's a mechanic. Like he has no social, you know, they're not thinking he has no social status, but like, why isn't he a physician or a business CEO with a lot of power and social status? And guys watch porn all day long, and then the slightly overweight girl is interested in them, and they're thinking, I would never date her. She's fat. Unfortunately, it kind of normalizes. There's a great article by Naomi Wolf that's actually on my website at pornographyexpert.com. You scroll down, it says Naomi Wolf. It's called the porn myth or something along those lines, and and it talks about that that difference. And another cool thing to look at on the Pornography Expert website is to look at the Don Simons. There's a Donald Simons academic video. It's like ten minutes long that kind of gets to what you're saying. That if you think about like nutrition, for example, McDonald's and Burger King aren't the number one restaurants because because of their marketing. It's because they have fatty, salty, sugary foods. And that's what our evolved taste preferences have, have geared us towards. There's a reason that soup plantation or the local salad place or Jamba Juice isn't the number one selling retailer or a food source, right? So because it doesn't cater to our evolved uh, psychology. So for men, we have cues to look for youth and fertility, which are signaled by waist-hip ratios around 0.7, breasts, but signs of, of, of health. And so what do pornographers do? They exploit that. They say, I know guys like these types of girls. Not all guys can get these types of girls naked. So we're going to film them and we're going to sell them and we're going to make money and guys will pay for it. And then when guys are used to watching that over and over and over again, that becomes their, their model for what their partner should be like. And then they don't accept a quote unquote real woman. And conversely, when the woman watches the romance novel and the guy drops everything and professes her love and shares his kingdom and his huge house and all his social prestige with her, then she meets the right, a quote unquote, real guy, right? As they say, when women criticize the porn business, who just makes the per capita income of $36,000 a year. And she's like, I don't want to go out with this guy. <laughs> he's not going to give me my house on the ocean. You know, he's not going to be, you know, have all this social influence that I'm so used to seeing that falls for the heroine in the, in the romance novel. So I think that's the problem is you just have these products that are designed specifically to resonate with the cues of men and women respectively through porn and romance novels. And until people really understand the other gender through shows like this or through reading books about like A Billion Wicked Thoughts or The Evolution of Desire, What Women Want, What Men Want, all these books are also listed on the Pornography Expert website. Once you have an understanding, then you can make it work. And I tell people that, you know, think of men as one circle. Think of women as another circle. And there's a little overlap, like an Olympic ring. And it's that little overlap where you can actually make relationships work. And as long as guys stay in the porn world, their circle is isolated. As long as women stay in the television, romance novel, chick flick realm, their circle is isolated. And neither one will ever have a real relationship. And it isn't until you actually, until women actually watch porn and guys read romance novels and they have conversations with each other that that circle can eventually talk to each other 
and they can find compromise in the interlap, and that's what allows relationships to work, in my view. Have you read Fifty Shades of Grey? Uh, I have not, but I mean, but, uh, but no, no, I mean, I should. <laughs> no, 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 but I, I did, I, I got halfway through the first one, I think, or a quarter. Right, uh, for it. but that's all you need to read. I mean, it's like saying to the girl, have you seen Gang Bang Come Sluts number 23? You know, it's like a four-hour movie that, let's say, guys love. And the girl's like, I saw the first 15 minutes. That's all she needed to watch was the first 15 right, minutes right. to get what guys need. But the thing is, is if you're interested in this type of stuff, and I go right to the academic literature, which is the best place to go, but most people don't want to do that. I mean, if you're a girl, you can go right to the academic literature without watching porn to get the same information you would get from watching porn, to know that guys like low investment sex, partner variety, it's an evolved mechanism that gets to our cost of sex, and it's consistent across the So what do you think of the research to date compared to your experiences? Do you think it, the work of Jeffrey Miller and we've had Glenn Geher and you know we've talked about David Buss and all this evolutionary psychology area basically that you've been talking about and we've also had on the show previously. Do you think the research fits your view of reality yet or is there, is there are there still some Absolutely. gaps where you think, you think? Well, I think the only gap is the fact that Evolutionary psychologists are always quick to say, oh, but this doesn't apply to everyone. Like, it's not an excuse to let guys cheat or an excuse for women to be gold diggers. Like, it's almost like they throw this political correctness spin at the beginning of evolutionary psychology lecture. I remember I was taking this evolutionary psychology class uh, just for the fun of it. And before they started talking about rape as a possible adaptation, just from an academic literature standpoint, there was this like five minute like disclaimer. We all know that rape is wrong. You know, it's like this this politically correct thing. And in my book, I talk in the in the introduction. I say, listen, I believe in what they call biological determinism. Sure, there are certain men that aren't going to cheat, but they've chosen not to cheat. I look at, at infidelity and in men specifically, kind of like dieting, right? You could be the best, healthiest workout guy in the world, and you're eating carrots every day and lettuce, and you're drinking water only. And if you have a cheeseburger once a year. Okay, that's your infidelity. You're actually doing pretty good. You're good at dieting. You know, you're a good dieter compared to the guy who has a cheeseburger every single day. So there's a guy in a relationship and he's getting a different escort every week for lunch at lunch when his wife's at home. He's not very good at monogamy. But somebody else who's actually gets a blowjob every six months from somebody he happens to meet, he's actually very good at monogamy. He's good at monogamy in the way that the guy who's eating really healthy at the gym is good at eating healthy, even though he still had a hot dog on August 2nd, <laughs> where the rest of the year he was eating vegetables and spinach. Yeah. So I think there's one phrase you say in your book, which kind of really defines the way you look at this. Uh, let me know. You say men are as faithful as their options when it comes to sex, which you've kind of already said in this. And then the other thing you said was women need a reason to cheat and men need a reason not to cheat. Correct. That for sure. That comes from the movie This Girl's Life, which is a great movie, by the way, for people who want to understand evolutionary concepts as well as... The Could you say that again? Which uh, This Girl's Life. Okay, um, and and as well as the movie Closer are great movies. Oh, I love Closer. Yeah, I was they, just talking. It was so funny. I interviewed a gold digger that I met here, um, hardcore gold digger, and she mentioned that movie. She loves that movie, and I loved it too. Yeah, it's a good um, movie. I really do think it is a very accurate view depiction. Or, yeah, yeah. It's, it, which is unusual for movies. Absolutely, that and This Girl's Life, um, and on the counterpart, and that's just the sexuality component. And then you look at a movie like The Notebook, which women love, which is a great depiction of romance. And what women don't understand is men can separate love and romance. I can be in mad love with a girl and have sex with all our friends and it doesn't change how I feel about the girl. I could, I could meet a girl and have sex with her every day and never develop an ounce of feelings for her. Or conversely, I could spend quality time with a girl and never have sex with her and fall in love with her. For us, sex and love are completely devoid of one another. For women, it's on the same 
it's on the same wavelength. I mean, it's the same thing is happening. Now, on the, the other quote you mentioned, which was um, men are faithless are options, that's from Chris Rock. And I would, I would tweak it a little to say that men are as faithful as their attractive options that they know are legitimate. So in other words, if I know that it's very rare for a girl to just come up to me and say, excuse me, you're hot. Can you come back to my place and give me a blowjob, right? But, or, and give me a, whatever, give, I'll give you a blowjob. So if that happened to me, I would want to do it, but I would think, am I being set up? Like, let's say I have a girlfriend. Like, <laughs> my girlfriend setting me up. Like, is, is, is this a trick? Am I going to get, is there going to be a negative consequence from doing this? That's so funny. I've thought about that recently too. Yeah. So there's that component. So if the guy knows for sure that he's not going to be caught and that the girl that we're talking about is attractive, that she's not a 90 year old, 500 pound woman, then I would say, yes, that's true. So I'm just, I kind of qualified a little bit. Um, <laughs> it's a most, and another, another great one too is, you know, they say that men, are like Bluetooth and women are like Wi-Fi, where men are connected to you while you're there, but when we travel, we start looking for other devices. <laughs> and Wi-Fi, women are like Wi-Fi, where they see all the available connections, but they go, they connect to the strongest one, right? So you go to like a place and you see the 20 different connections, and you connect to the signal that's showing the most commitment, the, you know, the, the strongest bars. That's the one you connect to. You see, there's a lot of options. You connect to the to the one that with the strongest uh, bars. And for men, you know, we're Bluetooth. We're connected to our girlfriend while she's there. Then we travel and we see all these other. We need to connect to another device. But when we come home, then we reconnect to the girlfriend. As long as women realize that male sexuality has nothing to do with them, we don't. People need to get out of their myopic mindset. Women need to stop thinking that men perceive sex the way that women do, and men need to stop thinking that way. To your earlier comment about this clit stimulating class, that's a male view of sexuality. It's it's not consistent with female sexuality. That is the equivalent of, of the female dating advice columnists for men, you know. <laughs> well, so, or maybe I didn't explain it. It's a community where women will do what's called OM, orgasmic meditation. And I'm, I'm, we're going to have an episode on this because I'm going to um, talk about my experiences and I've interviewed people and so on. But um, basically, just for the benefit here, it's uh, where women will be doing this maybe three times per day. And so a different guy will come to their house to do this uh, to them and then leave. What's interesting to me is that the guys aren't getting anything sexually out of it. But they kind of are. I mean, like if you go to a strip club and a dancer comes up to a guy and says, excuse me, want to go in the back room and rub my clit? There are probably guys that would pay to do that. Where if I went to a place with girls and said, hey, uh, want me to pay? If you give me 20 bucks, I'll let you jerk me off. They would punch me or call the cops. Or, you know, it wouldn't be... Uh, appealing but you know people don't understand the difference in male female sexuality like guys can look at a picture of boobs just look at boobs and we can jerk off to completion right women never just look at a penis and orgasm to completion there's more of a context around what's happening i mean there's a reason that romance novels take seven chapters before climax occurs and porn takes seven minutes you know, before a climax. right right so this community is a very focused, there's a whole ritual about it. And so it's focused on the women's experience, I feel. It's focused on the meditation and uh, there's there's aspects that come before and after the 15 minutes, which are more of a ritual and about connection. Well, let me tell you this. Um, let me tell you this. From what you're telling me and from what I know about female sexual psychology, that is as likely to be successful and take a national interest as Sue Plantation is to become the next McDonald's. It, it's, it's not at all in line with... Fe- okay, so you have to, you have to look into yeah, it. No, um, because it's, it's, it's got a fairly sizable community now. And the people inside it are very gung-ho about it. You get some real fans of it. It's got a... The founder is Nicole Dado, and she's done a TEDx. Anyway, just check it out. I'll be interested to see what, see what you, you think of it. It's kind of going in the extreme opposite direction of porn, in a way. If we have this sexual... It's, it's still kind of like polyamory, in a way, right? 
because you have all these uh, different partners and so on. I know there's some of your more extreme views that I want to talk about. Uh, or like more shocking ones, let's put it more like that for most people. So there's some of the things you, you say are like women should embrace pornography and prostitution. Uh-huh. What is the thinking behind that? And I understand that the idea is like to improve relationships in general and how males and females are relating to each other. Well, sure. I mean, let's go back to the old age transaction of prostitution. Right? A guy gives a girl money, a girl gives sexual access. If the girl isn't giving sexual access, the guy's not giving money. If the guy's not giving money, the girl's not giving sexual access. So there was a time when if a woman wasn't attractive, it was really the attractiveness. Before women could work, the more attractive women, the more successful men would pursue those or court those women, and those women would have nice lifestyles. So if you didn't win the genetic lottery of being an attractive female, you're basically relegated to either living with your family for the rest of your life because nobody would take you off their hands or living with a low-status male and not having a similar life of somebody who was more attractive that was able to marry a physician or an attorney or somebody of – of social status. So women said, we want to work. We don't want to be dependent upon some guy for work. And a lot of men were opposed to that. They didn't want women to work because we could use the, the economic resources as a way of controlling them or, or making it harder for them to leave and not letting them be autonomous. Now, I believe women should work. Let them work. I mean, if they want to work, let them work, right? Now, the counter end to that is men never developed our right to basically sexual access, to say, listen, if I am not the most personable, outgoing, confident guy, if I don't have these tactics that the pickup artist communities use to have sexual access with attractive women, why should I be relegated as a low-status male making $10 an hour working at McDonald's to having sex with unattractive, overweight women? Why can't I also have the attractive girlfriend just like the unattractive girl can now become her own attorney you know, and, and live the lifestyle that she would otherwise have by marrying one. So I think a lot of women are opposed to legalizing prostitution for the very same reason that a lot of men were opposed to having women work because then they lose power, they lose control. And I think if you legalize prostitution, as when you look at most other countries where it is legalized, the rates come down. I mean, if you try to get a prostitute in the U.S., a quality prostitute, you're looking at several hundred dollars, if not a thousand dollars, for like a high-end one. But if you go to Mexico, <laughs> you know, or Thailand, it's very, very cheap because it's legal and regulated. So the thing is, is and when you look at like you know Western Europe, Australia, Canada, you know most of these places, prostitution is legal. It's just the sort of American social conservative religious influence that doesn't make it available. But I think if you make it available, like I, I joke with my friends, you know, I used to have this friend Renee and she was awesome. I was not attracted to Renee at all. No boobs, red hair, slightly overweight, but the coolest chick on the, on the planet. I used to hang out with her all the time. And I used to say to my friends, you know, if Renee were hot, I would marry her. Like that's how, how connected we were. And Renee would say to me, you know, Dave, you have sex with everyone. How come we never had sex? I didn't want to hurt her feelings. So I'm like, well, you know, I don't want to ruin the friendship. That'd be too weird. Like, you know, so, but the thing is, is in theory, if prostitution were legal, I would consider marrying Renee as being my partner, but then I could just get my sexual vibe. Like when I go to McDonald's, you know, I'm going to stop by the, uh, the brothel, get my blowjob and go home to Renee. And then Renee would be happy because she's in a relationship with somebody that she connects with. But now Renee is relegated to being single most of her life. As far as I know, she's never really had a boyfriend because nobody wants to have, be with Renee if, if that entails the sexual exclusivity that, that they need to have. So I think by legalizing prostitution, one, you create a safe outlet for married men and men more generally to have sex where they're not going to be at risk for having to lie to a girl saying that they love her and then having that girl freak out and tell the wife and then it ruins the family and everyone gets divorced. These professional women would understand that it's just a transaction and there's no 
There's no risk at home of anything happening. You'd be controlling for STDs through regulation that the guy couldn't bring back to the wife or girlfriend. You're creating jobs. You're giving people more empowerment. No one's forced to be going to prostitution. But if a girl wants to, it's within her full choice. You're expanding expanding, uh, female choice and sexual autonomy for those who choose to do it. I just don't see any downside. And this is why prostitution is legal in most developed countries. Great. Thank you for the views on that. Um, got two last questions just because we're running out of time here, which I'm kind of gutted about. But, um, you know, maybe we'll have you on the show a bit later and, and not a third time. <laughs> a third time. <laughs> um, yeah, because I'm, I'm sure that will be great for the audience. You've got so much to talk about. Who besides yourself would you recommend for high quality advice in the whole dating, sex and relationships area? You've mentioned a few people already, but could you just kind of round it off? That's a great question. And first of all, tell people, if they go to pornographyexpert.com, I have all this academic literature of the people who, who talk about the stuff that I'm talking about. But I, I think the key books to read are a book called What Women Want, What Men Want, Why the Two Sexes Still See Love and Commitment So Differently. And that's written by an anthropologist at Syracuse University named John Marshall Townsend. So he's the first. He, that would be the the key book to read. Another key book to read is a book by David Buss at the University of Texas in the psychology department. He's an evolutionary psychologist called uh, The Evolution of Desire. I think those are probably the two best books I've read. Now, within the community of evolutionary psychologists, and I've read this book. I don't like it as much as the other two, but I'll just recommend it because everybody else does, is a book by Don Simons, who's a professor emeritus at the University of California, Santa Barbara, also in their anthropology department. And his book is called The Evolution of Human Sexuality. But again, I mean, if you read these other two books, you're going to get all the components of that book. It's just his book is just really academic that it gets kind of boring for regular readers. But the evolution of desire and and the what women want, what men want, I think, uh, are better. And then I would suggest that people re, uh, watch the movie This Girl's Life to get a view of male sexuality as well as closer. And then also to watch like Pretty Woman and, you know, The Notebook to get an idea of what women Pretty Woman is like unrealistic, like that a guy falls in love with a prostitute. But, I mean, for, for what women's sort of fantasy is, so to speak, and then to watch The Notebook for a depiction of how great romance can be for romance in itself, irrespective of sex. So, so the, the Notebook is really the male emotional system at work, and Closer or This Grows Life is the male physical system at work. It'll allow people to see both, and I think since women fuse physical and love that The Notebook in itself is also a good view of how women view both the physical and the emotional component of sexuality. And let me leave you with with a funny story, if we have time, which is um, how I've managed to to negotiate this conflict. It's called sexual conflict theory in in my real life. So I was talking to this girl that I met on some dating side. I think it was like, okay, Peter. And, um, you know, girls always want to meet quickly. And I told her, I'm like, listen, here's the thing. Like, if imagine yourself as a guy, you go to a restaurant and you don't know that they're going to feed you, but you're hungry and you see chicken fettuccine alfredo and let's just say it's your favorite and you see it you smell it and you want to eat it but the restaurant says i'm sorry i don't know you well enough maybe come back tomorrow you can sit in front of the dish you can look at it you can smell it but you can't have it maybe until the third day or whatever you know the girl decides and, and i said to him, i'm like listen women i understand women women want to have sex just as much as men but there's a cost for women to have sex you have to do your detective work, you know, make sure that the guy is healthy, emotionally viable, has genetics, et cetera, in the event that you get pregnant. Even if you're not thinking about pregnancy, this is what's happening in your brain. So when I talk to you on the phone, let's say you're a girl right now, we're having this conversation, you can gauge my level of intelligence. You can gauge whether or not I'm threatening. You can gauge all these these different things. So if I talk to the girl for one to two hours at a time over, let's say, many weeks, three or four weeks, 
by the time I meet that girl, when I actually see her now and I see, wow, look at her nice boobs, look at her, she's very pretty, I really want to have sex with her, she's going to know chemistry right away because she's already talked to me and she knows me, that my likelihood of having sex at the end of that date is 98% she likes me. Whereas even if it's our first date and we've never had an in-depth conversation or really prefaced it by having many phone calls before then, my likelihood, even if she likes me, is maybe 25% which kind of sucks if you're hungry and you go to the restaurant and they're not going to feed you, right? So a lot of things that, that women also don't understand is for men, we don't have to necessarily have sex. We just have to get off. So in other words, if I'm making out with a girl, I'm trying to have sex with her and she's not ready, the guy shouldn't be frustrated. Like, oh, this girl's a prude. You know, and the girl shouldn't feel bad because she's not ready. What she should do is you keep making out with the guy because she's comfortable doing that. But say to him, hey, you know what, what I think is really hot? I love watching guys masturbate. I think that's so hot. It turns me on. Whether it's true or not, the guy's comfortable. He's making out with her. He jerks off. He just came, right? Now, even if the girl said, I'm super horny, now he can't do anything because he has a refractory. Uh, I can never say that word, refractory period or whatever. But he's happy. The guy came. He climaxed. He experienced his, his hormone release. And now you know, he can cuddle and talk to the girl devoid of this alternative plan of trying to hook up with her. And I'm sure you know as a guy, you know, once you've had sex with a girl – Everything changes. It's like it's just you can completely be yourself. There's no bullshit. Like you don't have this alternative agenda of how to have sex with her because like once you've come, you're just relaxed. You're one with the environment and what's happening and you can continue to build that emotional connection through conversation and, and cuddling and it's a completely different experience. And, and, I, and I can tell you over and over and over again that women are okay once they've conquered sort of the social awkwardness of you know, just saying, hey, I met this guy, went on a date with him and I watched him jerk off. But – if they can communicate, if the guy can say, listen, I really want to have sex with you because I'm a guy and I see you and it triggers these cues of arousal because I see how pretty you are. And then when I can't have sex with you, it's like going to the restaurant and you're hungry, you want to eat, you can. At least when you go to the restaurant, give the guy some chips. You, know, you go to a Mexican restaurant or give the guy some bread and olive oil at the time. Give him something to at least stay him over until the food arrives, right? So, And women can easily do that. But if you're comfortable making out with the guy, suggest to him because most guys aren't thinking about this in the level of detail that I am, but suggest them go, hey, you know what would be really hot? You know, so I want to, I love watching you jerk off, right? And then so she's making out with him. He jerks off. He comes. He's completely like, this chick is awesome. He's relaxed. He orgasm. She's happy because she didn't have sex yet because she wasn't ready. Everybody wins. And now they can get back to their, to, to their mosey all time, right? But nobody thinks about these, these alternative ways or, or saying to a girl, listen, I, I understand you don't want to have sex right away because you don't know the guy and you, you know, there's security concerns, et cetera. But if you talk to him, like you and I are talking right now, we know each other better on this call than we did on the previous call and then better on the previous call than we did never speaking to each other. And we'll know each other more on the third call. But if you're a woman, after all this talking, you're much more likely to be receptive to a sexual encounter. If we went on our first date after the fourth call, if we're talking for an hour, then saying, oh, hey, nice profile. Let's meet for coffee. And you show up and then the guy has to expend some kind of resources for something that isn't nearly certain on either capacity, whether the girl will like the guy or that the guy will like the girl. So I think there's a modern way to approach dating that's in line with everybody's sexual psychology where everybody can be happy, where those two circles can overlap. But you can't know where the circles overlap unless you understand what motivates the other gender. It's great. I think you've given us some really great viewpoints. And I, you know, I'd be interested what some of the female audience is, is going to say to that. So um yeah, I'd love to hear your ideas in the comments about what Dave's saying here, if you agree, or if that's going to incite you to run some experiments on your, your dates like this and to see if it goes much better and, and it, much better suited. So Dave, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been great two interviews, uh, so packed with information and views. I think it's really valuable for the guys. Thank you much. Appreciate it. Take control of your dating life today. 
Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait, do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at datingskillsreview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.